Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Morning, everyone. Glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live with us again in Tel Aviv, Israel. It is 6 a.m. here in New York, 1 p.m. in Israel, where right now Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Jerusalem. He is meeting once again with Israeli leaders. And we're also looking at these live pictures of smoke billowing above Gaza City, a dire humanitarian crisis that's unfolding there at this moment. And an Israeli ground offensive appears to be imminent this morning. Blinken said just a short time ago that the U.S. is, quote, actively working to ensure that humanitarian assistance like water, food and medicine can get into Gaza. The Secretary of State also saying yesterday that a safe passageway into Egypt via the Rafah crossing would be open as half a million people have fled northern Gaza for the south. But overnight, those negotiations seem to have stalled. The Israeli prime minister's office saying, quote, at the moment, there is neither a ceasefire nor humanitarian assistance in the Gaza Strip in return for the exit of foreigners. President Biden towing a thin line saying that Israel must go after Hamas while also warning Israel against occupying Gaza. Israel is going after a group of people who engage in barbarism that is as consequential as the Holocaust. And uh, so I think Israel has to respond. They have to go after Hamas. Would you support Israeli occupation of Gaza at this point? I think it'd be a big mistake. Look, what happened in Gaza, in my view, is Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, I think that uh, it would be a mistake to, uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again. Do you believe that Hamas must be eliminated entirely? Uh, yes, I do. But there needs to be a Palestinian authority. There needs to be a, a path to a Palestinian state. Also, this just in, Israel now says 199 people are being held hostage in Gaza. That is their latest count. We are covering all of this all around the world. Let's begin with Erin. She's live in Tel Aviv. That is quite an increase from what they had thought before in terms of those hurt. I wonder if that also indicates, Erin, that their intelligence is getting a little bit better there. You know, Poppy, that's a really good point, because as you point out, 199, that's about 50 more than they had been saying over the past few days. The number has been a bit amorphous, but um, 199 um, hostages that they say are still there. Now, in conversations with uh, Israeli military, they are honest that they don't know how many of them are alive or dead. The most detail they've given us on this is to say that they believe some of them may have actually died as they were being brought from Israel into Gaza. But that's the most we've been able to get. While there have been reports uh, that maybe a dozen hostages were killed in strikes, there has been no confirmation of that. We have absolutely no visibility on that, uh, other than that we understand from the IDF that they're being held in tunnels sort of scattered around Gaza uh, that Hamas has not been known to use before. And that's still the very latest 
latest that we have on that. But as you point out, a very significant increase. And Poppy, it could point out more intelligence. It could point out more negotiations going on, that they actually have a real sense of the number. But it's impossible to really uh, put put details around what it means. Uh, all we can say is that that number is a huge increase. And talking to some of those families, the heartbreak is truly horrible to hear. Aaron, at the same time, you just heard explosions where you are a few moments ago. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, yeah, so we heard some explosions, and, and frankly, we've been hearing um, quite a few explosions just over the past 12, 16 hours, I would say, that actually don't come along with air raid sirens. And uh, that's because the Israeli Iron Dome, the, the air raid sirens, there's actually an app for it that you can follow, is very specific as to where an exact risk of a hit is. So when you hear a siren, you move fast. The rockets aren't traveling far. So you move very quickly to shelter because it really could be a real risk to you. When you don't hear a siren, you may hear very loud booms and thuds as we do, uh, but it's because the Iron Dome sort of with the math and the algorithm have determined that uh, that it isn't a, a risk to the direct location. So we have heard plenty of those. Also, Israeli helicopters, military helicopters have been flying over in these past few moments, and fighter jets, uh, low and, and very audible. Sometimes they're a little higher up, Phil. Uh, as they go into Gaza for strikes, uh, there have been some lower, much louder ones in the early hours of dawn this morning. And as you said, it's about one o'clock here right now. As we await for the possibility of a ground invasion truly at any time. Keep in mind what those jets come with yesterday, 250 airstrikes alone just yesterday in Gaza. So when we hear those jets, it is followed a few seconds later by an explosion and, of course, the devastation that that means in Gaza. Aaron, we know Secretary Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, back in Israel today in Jerusalem, meeting with leaders there. All of this around these conflicting reports about that critical crossing, the only possible one at this point out of Gaza into Egypt, the Rafah crossing in the south. What is the status of that being open? It was supposed to be open for Americans this weekend. Right. It was. And then, of course, it wasn't. And it is the topic of all of the negotiations. Secretary Blinken obviously going to be talking about that here. He's been uh, in Egypt uh, with uh, LCC there uh, and, and having that conversation as well. They want a humanitarian quarter. They want Americans out of Gaza. Uh, there are a lot of uh, Americans and Palestinian Americans in Gaza. Uh, and that is even separate, of course, from the broader humanitarian crisis you're talking about. Secretary Blinken obviously was here on Friday and then was, I'm sorry, on Thursday and then traveling through the United, uh, through the, the region, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, uh, de desperately trying for some sort of diplomacy. Then coming back here, it was announced late yesterday. So he's here now in a meeting with the prime minister. There was a congressional, uh, sorry, senatorial delegation, delegation here last night. Senator Romney was here, Senator Kelly uh, and Majority Leader Schumer. And they told me, I asked Senator Schumer, why was Blinken coming back? Was the purpose of this perhaps to get Prime Minister Netanyahu to stall or to slow down, to bring this down a notch? His view was no. That's not the purpose at all, that Secretary Blinken uh, is here primarily to try to keep diplomacy in the region on track, but not to try to influence in any way the decisions that not Netanyahu may make on the timing of uh, this this anticipated ground invasion of Gaza. And ahead of that, of course, you talk about the Gaza uh, refugees and getting people out of there. There is, of course, a, a broader sort of evacuation going on in Israel itself. A flight with nearly 300 Americans on board who were previously stranded in Israel actually left overnight. That flight went to uh, Tampa, Florida overnight. We're also uh, aware uh, after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order for charter flights for Floridians trapped in Israel. And DeSantis was went then there. It was a 
real publicity moment for him on the runway. And the United States is helping more Americans evacuate Israel. As you all know, it's hard, right? There is no Lebanese border. There is no Syrian border. They can cross no Saudi border, right? You've, you've, you've got to go uh, Jordan. Uh, or you you got to go by sea. And so they have a ship, uh, 10 to 12 hours on this giant evacuation ship from the U.S. military from Haifa uh, going to Cyprus. Our Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon. Natasha, this is this is almost it's basically a military cruise ship. Tell us what you know. Yeah, that's right, Aaron. So the U.S. making an effort here to try to evacuate civilians and citizens, U.S. citizens who do want to leave. And what we're told is that it's going to be uh, departing from Haifa. And actually, it was uh, boarding earlier this morning around 1 a.m. Eastern time. And it is about 10 to 12 hours from Haifa to Cyprus. It has to be only U.S. nationals and their immediate family members. And then once these U.S. citizens get to Cyprus, if they do not have the ability uh, to uh, arrange their own travel onward, then the U.S. is going to be arranging for charter flights uh, for them to uh, continue with their onward journey there. Now, it's important to note that this is not a uh, non-combatant evacuation operation as such that the military, for example, carried out uh, in Afghanistan when U.S. citizens were trying to flee at that point. This is a smaller effort. It is organized by the U.S. State Department, and the State Department issued that alert just yesterday saying that they were going to be uh, organizing this evacuation for citizens who want to leave. Now, we should note that we first reported uh, earlier this uh, earlier this weekend that the U.S. military is putting a Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, kind of on standby, preparing them for the possibility that they might have to deploy closer to Israel uh, in the event that there is that demand signal from U.S. citizens who want to depart Israel en masse. So right now, they have not gotten that order. This Marine Expeditionary Unit is capable of helping to support large-scale evacuations, and that is actually actually one of their mission uh, essential tasks. They have not gotten that order yet. Uh, The White House has said that they have not seen yet the demand signal from U.S. citizens trying to leave Israel. Remember, a lot of these people are dual citizens, so they don't necessarily want to leave the country. Um, But they are preparing uh, for that possibility if if they need to, Erin. So, Natasha, why is the U.S. sending a second carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean Sea? Just when you think about the air power, doubling the air power almost, that that would make uh, available to the U.S. military in the region. What does that actually signal in terms of the posture and the, the, the way the U.S. sees as a potential for escalation? Yeah, Erin, this is a huge show of force. I mean, even the first aircraft carrier, which arrived in the region earlier this week, that was very significant. But now to have a second aircraft carrier heading towards the eastern Mediterranean, that is extremely significant. And it is really a sign that the U.S. is concerned about the possibility that additional groups, additional actors will try to join this conflict. And so it is meant as a deterrent, primarily against Hezbollah, uh, that Lebanese militant group that the U.S. has expressed so much worry about that the the possibility that they could open a new front in this conflict. Of course, Iran, uh, which backs Hezbollah and also backs Hamas, also uh, very concerned that they could get involved somehow. So two aircraft carriers, strike carriers in this region, really significant, a sign that the U.S. is trying to show a really uh, forceful sign of deterrence, Aaron. Natasha, thank you very much at the Pentagon this hour. Poppy and Phil, back to you. Aaron, thank you very much. And we also just learned that Secretary of State Antony Blinken will not only meet with Netanyahu and the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, he's also going to meet with the opposition leader there and the defense minister of Israel. So a lot of key meetings still ahead for the Secretary of State. Joining us now 
former White House foreign policy advisor in the George W. Bush administration, Dan Senor. Dan, it's great to have you, especially on a day like this. I want to get to the Biden interview in a moment, mm -hmm. but there is mass confusion, as Aaron just reported, over the, the southern crossing, the yeah. only potentially possibly safe way for Palestinians, Americans to get out yeah. of Gaza. Can you explain what is happening right now diplomatically? Because Saturday it was supposed to be open for five hours for Americans to get out, and it wasn't, and the blame was on Hamas. Yeah, but what can be done? There's two things going on. Hamas doesn't really want the Palestinians leaving because the way they wage their war is they co-locate civilians, large concentrations of civilians, with their weapons capabilities. So the UN-run schools in Gaza have Hamas's weapons. They know if Israel tries to take out Hamas's weapons, they're going to hit the UN-run schools. They put their command centers, the military command centers, in hospitals because they know if Israel tries to hit a command center, they can say, look, you hit a hospital. So the last thing they want is dispersing the Palestinians to other parts of Gaza, to southern Gaza, they, that um, makes it harder for, for Hamas to use them as human shields. Egypt doesn't want all these Palestinians coming in over the Rafah border. They say they're, they, this is a human, humanitarian plight and that we should look after the Palestinians' you know, needs and their humanitarian needs. But the one easy way to do it is to move them across the Rafah border into Egypt, and they don't want to do that. Now, what Egypt is doing is trying to move, apparently, food and other healthcare supplies into Gaza. Israel's letting them do that. That's tricky because you don't know who controls them once you send them into Gaza. So is Hamas in control of them? Are terrorists getting access to those supplies? So the southern border is a mess. The single best move would be for the Egyptian, the Sisi government, to say, we will take in Palestinians. We will create refugee areas. We will create 10 cities. It's worked in other parts of the world. He says it's very costly. It's very expensive. But as we've seen from Ukraine to the war in Syria, international community spent enormous amounts of money yeah. absorbing these people. So no single country had to absorb them. And the them. UN, uh, UN uh, RWA is already setting up and they have people now positioned there in, in northern Egypt in the hope that this will open. Right, right. And like I said, there's precedent for Egypt not absorbing all the costs. Sisi knows yeah. that. He's slow, he's slow walking it. But there are domestic security concerns as well. And, and I think this is, you know, the, to your point, what they say publicly, what CC says publicly versus what his considerations are internally right. uh, oftentimes diverge from one right. another. Uh, and I think that is a driver as well to not wanting a large... And if that's his concern, he should say it. But what he shouldn't do is say that this is Israel's fault. Because to your point, these are security concerns that he has, which right. is fine. And again, the international community can help him with that. Mm -hmm. I want you to listen to... Two things that Secretary Blinken said. The first is in that critical press conference with uh, Netanyahu. Yeah. And the second was yesterday in Egypt. Listen to how they echo one another. As the Prime Minister and I discussed, how Israel does this matters. The way that Israel does this matters uh, needs to do it in a way that affirms uh, the shared values that we have for human life and human dignity, taking every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. Intentional that he said it both times in that way. And the real question is, you know, what will the U.S. support in terms of how Israel does it? They, they have said they are in lockstep no matter what. Right. Well, no, I, I, I think the, um, the comparison that President Biden made in his, in his speech in his press statement last week where he kept comparing Israel to ISIS all right now, when the U.S. sorry, when it comes sorry, comparing Hamas, thank you. When it comparing yeah. Hamas to ISIS, when the United States, over the course of three administrations, right, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, went to wipe out ISIS, 
They obviously didn't want casualties. They didn't want civilians to be killed. But there was collateral damage in war that is inevitable. And that did not slow them down from taking out ISIS. You've heard President Biden make these repeated comparisons to the Holocaust, right? That what Hamas has done to Israel is the worst suffering of Jews anywhere in the world in any single day since the Holocaust. You know, there's we we were concerned, obviously, America and the UK and our allies were worried about civilian casualties during during in fighting World War Two. But obviously there are civilian casualties and there's collateral damage. So these these, you know, declarations that Israel should be mindful, of course, Israel should be mindful. But to my earlier point, how do you, how do you be mindful when they're putting their offensive capabilities in hospitals and UN run schools? And at the end of the day, that's the dilemma that Israel faces. Well, cutting off water, electricity. Yeah. The question well, is, could you strategically put it on to hospitals, for example? Or could you move it to the southern part yeah. of the southern part of Gaza, where Israel's trying to get the Palestinian the Palestinians in Gaza to move to? Yeah. Here's where I struggle with the ISIS analogy, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. They had a caliphate that they had created amongst themselves, but when they were taken out, there were governing structures and infrastructure there in Iraq, Syria. It's a little debatable to some degree um, to fill the vacuum or to retake uh, control. The president, in that 60 Minutes interview, saying he would be opposed to Israel occupying Gaza. There's a very real reason that Israel pulled out of occupation of Gaza. And so I think my big question, particularly if you're going to point to ISIS, is, okay, who fills this vacuum? Right. Well, so first of all, when ISIS was driven out of those areas like Raqqa, there was a massive vacuum. There was no, there was no strong governing authority in places like Syria and elsewhere that could like really fill that well, vacuum. One did exist, at least, when he, in Iraq. Yeah, okay. But I, I, it was weak. Sure. And of course, the, the U.S. went in saying, look, we've got to wipe out ISIS. ISIS poses an enormous threat to the West. We're going to wipe out ISIS, and then we will figure out how to fill the vacuum. But you can't say we're going to live, we're not going to learn to live with ISIS until we figure out what's going to succeed ISIS. Mm -hmm. And I just think after what Israel went through over the past week, right, babies beheaded, babies burned, women's raped, en masse, like Jew hunting, the idea that that Israel should be told, you're going to have to learn to live with this entity here until we figure out what succeeds it. There are possibilities for who succeeds it. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank which used to be in control in Gaza before Hamas drove them out, could be reestablished in Gaza. There's a whole range of options. Yeah. But, th- but this is an existential threat to Israel. Israeli yeah. leaders are dealing with the worst threat to Israel's existence since the 1973 Yom Kippur War. The idea that they should wait and learn to live with this threat that's on their border. I, I, we have to go. I, I'm not saying that they have to wait. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that foresight or trying to think through what happens next is a pretty critical component. Critical, here. except they didn't choose the timing of this. Right. This was just thrust upon them. They, they, had been, they had a security doctrine that was learning to live, to coexist effectively with Hamas for two decades since Israel pulled out in 2005. And then this happened. And the idea that this, the rug gets pulled out from Israel and Israel's supposed to say, well, you've got to figure out what comes next. Israel says, no, we have to protect our citizens right. from the, the Jew hunting that we saw last weekend or eight days ago. We will do that. We will protect our security and then we'll deal with what follows. Just quickly before you go, you were an advisor to President Bush, but you think this week for Biden has been what? I think it's been one of, if not the best weeks of his presidency. I think he has spoken with moral clarity uh, and I'm often a critic of his. Um, The language he has used both in his press statement earlier this week and in the 60 Minutes interview last night was not only um, uh, clear headed, but was actually quite moving. And I think he has established goalposts. There will be moments where governments around the world, including the U.S., will be critical of what Israel does in the weeks ahead. But President Biden put down markers. He compared what Israel is going through to the Holocaust. 
As we said earlier, he's compared what Israel is experiencing as the threat that ISIS posed to the West. Once you establish those markers, and I think he comes at it sincerely, as you and I were talking about it uh, off camera, President Biden has taken his grandchildren, every single one of them, mm -hmm. to visit concentration camps. I think he feels this. And once he puts down those markers, I think it's going to be very hard to be critical of Israel as it takes its next steps. Dan Zeno, thank you very it's much. Great, to, great to have you. Well, a ground operation in Gaza is expected soon. We're going to hear from an IDF spokesman on what's being done to free the hostages held by Hamas and how the threat of severe weather could actually impact the Israeli battle plans. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome back. We are live in Israel this morning, and so is Secretary of State Antony Blinken, uh, just landing here, arriving in Tel Aviv earlier this morning, where I'm standing. Blinken is meeting with the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli officials today. And Blinken and Netanyahu expected to hold a joint news conference in a little over an hour. His trip here, his second in days, comes, uh, of course, as Israel is about to launch a major ground offensive. It is expected to. And and there is a growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza ahead of that anticipated incursion. There's still confusion right now over whether the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt, the Rafah border crossing you're hearing so much about, will be opened for anyone to leave and for any humanitarian aid to be allowed in. And while Israel battles Hamas in this war, it is also now facing threats on another front, a front in the northern part of this country uh, against the powerful Iran-backed Hezbollah uh, militia in Lebanon and Syria. That threat continues to grow. And our chief global affairs correspondent, Matthew Chance, is there along that northern Israel border, uh, that possible second front. And uh, when I say possible, Matthew, uh, it's already there. There's already, of course, been a lot of action and already uh, people killed along that border. Yeah, there's been at least one person killed in, in exchange of fire across the border between northern Israel and, and, and Lebanon, and also Syria as well, territory inside Syria being used to fire rockets into uh, Israeli territory. Over the course of the past uh, 24 hours or so, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli military, uh, say they've carried out uh, multiple strikes on targets inside Lebanon uh, in response to at least nine rocket attacks uh, from Lebanese territory controlled by the Iranian-backed militia Hezbollah uh, into uh, northern Israel. But none of those attacks so far, and this is, this is crucial, none of them have reached what the Israelis call the point of escalation. We haven't seen yet the full-scale bombardment of northern 
Israel, uh, which Hezbollah would be capable of given its massive arsenal of rockets. Um, uh, that many people are bracing themselves and the Israeli army is bracing themselves for. Um, what the Israeli military has done is impose a security zone in the areas very close to the Lebanese border. They've pushed civilians back. Civilians in various areas, like this one, Kiryat Shimona, have been asked to evacuate their homes for security reasons because this is right directly in the firing line should Hezbollah decide to open up its missile arsenal and really start to uh, throw ordnance across the border uh, into northern Israel. Nevertheless, uh, Israeli forces that we've spoken to say they are determined uh, to fight back. They're not going to be caught off guard and in fact are actually bristling for a potential confrontation with the Lebanese uh, militia. Take a listen to one uh, Israeli commander who we spoke to near the border zone. Are you hopeful still that Hezbollah will stay out of this war? I hope there will be another front. We need to destroy Hezbollah. You, you hope there will be another front? Yes. You want the war? Yes. Why? Incredible. I mean, and that gives you a sense, Aaron, of the mood, not just amongst ordinary soldiers, but politicians, ordinary civilians here as well, uh, that they feel the time has come because of the attacks near Gaza uh, last weekend to really strike back at the enemies of Israel. What an incredible thing to say, right? I mean, you know, in a sense, surprising, but just shows you still how raw this is. You'd say, yes, we want another war with another group uh, because of how they feel right now. Powerful. Thank you very much, Matthew Chance, in northern Israel. Phil, back to you. Thanks, Aaron. Joining us now is IDF International Spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, I, I want to start with where Matthew ended, the idea that the, the individual that he spoke with actually wanted uh, the front in the north to open up uh, in an effort to go after Hezbollah as well. Is that something that you agree with? No, the situation on the north is extremely delicate at the time. The IDF is not looking to escalate on the border with Lebanon. And as Matthew pointed out rightly, there has been an extreme, an increase of exchanges across the border. We've seen several anti-tank guided missile strikes against civilians, uh, against military forces operating on the border. And indeed, we've evacuated in a, a, along the border in, in an area of two kilometers throughout the breadth of the, co of the, of the border of the frontier all of the civilians and we've asked them to leave and it's actually a coordinated evacuation because that's what we do we evacuate our civilians out of the line of danger and on the other hand it's a total of around 28 communities 28 towns and villages um, and on the other hand we are preparing ourselves for that eventuality and i think that soldier obviously he does not present the policy of the idf uh, that that uh, matthew interviewed on the on the spot in the field but of course there is a a sense that we need to be prepared for that eventuality. And of course, there is a challenge. What we, we understand, what we understand at this time is that Hezbollah is actually operating in order to increase and um, expand and per perhaps even uh, broaden the scope under the direction of Iran. And that is a cause of concern. And that is why we have recruited over the last 10 days some 300,000 reservists for both fronts, for also for the Gaza Strip, where the, which is the main arena at this time, but also to be prepared and poised for the potential outbreak of violence with Hezbollah in the north. 
Right. The, uh, there are now uh, confirmation that the number of hostages has gone up uh, roughly around 199, I believe, at this point. There's also been reports that uh, the IDF, uh, Israeli forces, have some intelligence about the whereabouts of at least some of the hostages. Is that accurate? Uh, Phil, I can't speak in depth about the situation or state of uh, the hostages. You know, that is that number, that 199 people abducted from their homes, taken from their bedrooms, taken from their kitchens. Now, that is a really serious thing that is happening and developing over the last 10 days now. Um, I, I won't go into the, the issues of them out of respect for the families, the victims, and also in order not to impede on the potential uh, uh, negotiations and, and actions behind. Of course, we, you know, we have gathering and we are gathering intelligence and there is a lot of intelligence coming out of the terrorists that we killed on uh, in the aftermath of the attack over the last 10 days and we're still killing terrorists even yesterday that are participating in, in, in this attack. Um, basically because, you know, when they are so proud of their action that they videoed everything in order to supplement and support their propaganda war. So they all have body cameras. So we know who they are and we know how to get to them. Lieutenant Colonel, on the Rafa border crossing, I am aware there are multiple different players involved here. And this is not entirely up to the Israelis, nor is it up to necessarily just the U.S. or the Egyptians or otherwise. But concerning the fact that it has not seemed to open yet, uh, I want to play some sound from uh, the Palestinian Red Crescent director, Marwan Jelani. Take a listen. Convoys of people who were flooding to the south were killed and targeted. The Rafah border was bombarded a couple of days ago itself. So I think in order for aid to get in, we need a ceasefire. Is a ceasefire an option in that area, given how fluid and dynamic that situation is? So we've heard and seen that the prime minister's uh, uh, office made an announcement that there is no ceasefire at this time. Right. And of course, the IDF is uh, subordinate to the, to, the, to the government and we will implement as, the, as instructed on that basis. We are operating and as we speak, there is another window of evacuation of civilians from the north to the south in order to get civilians, Palestinian civilians, out of harm's way. And it's actually Hamas who is trying to keep them there instructing them not to leave, placing checkpoints to block their roads, and also even um, uh, potentially booby-trapping some of the roads going south and then blaming Israel for it, as we did see a couple of days ago, and this is what's happened. So we are trying to shift people in order to distinct between the terrorists themselves and non-combatants, between Hamas and innocent civilians. We're trying to make a differentiation so that we can go in and destroy the bastion of barbarism of Hamas. We are determined that Hamas will never, ever have a, use Gaza as a staging ground for massacres in Israel. It is high time that they be banished from the realm of existence. Colonel, logistics are critical given what I think is being planned right now, what, what many people expect. Uh, there are weather issues right now, intensifying thunderstorms, uh, forecast impact Israel and Gaza. Uh, how does that play a role, if any, in the decision to launch what is expected to be a counteroffensive? So the IDF is a professional military. Weather will not be an option, an issue. We will uh, mobilize if instructed to do so in any weather, at, in under, any other circumstances. Of course, in order to achieve the, most, the, the best result, in order to achieve our goal of destroying Hamas.
All right, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, hospitals in Gaza are under constant bombardment and now facing an imminent shutdown, according to sources on the ground. How long until they completely run out of fuel? That's next. Also ahead, we will be speaking with the son of an American doctor. Her, his mother still stuck in Gaza on the efforts to evacuate civilians at that southern Rafah crossing are still being called fluid and unpredictable. Welcome back. So this morning, half a million people have moved to the southern part of Gaza, many hoping they can cross at some point through the Rafah crossing into Egypt. But it is still closed this morning. One of those people moving south, Dr. Barbara Zinn, she's an American pediatric oncologist who was visiting Gaza, helping Palestinian children with the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. You heard from her on CNN last week. She was on air with us as a bomb went off. Listen. Well, uh, whenever you go to Gaza, you always know that there's there's danger of some violence while you're there. But no, I wasn't well, I'm prepared for this. I started. We were also hoping to be joined by her this morning. We were unable to contact her because the Wi-Fi is just very spotty. Her son did message with her just a couple of hours ago, though. The last he heard, his mother was at a U.N. building about five miles from that southern border with Egypt. Joining us now uh, is her son, Daniel Preston, who joins us. I really appreciate you being here. We've gotten to hear from your mother a couple of times on CNN over the past week. What is the update you can share with us as she moves south and hopes to be able to leave? Yeah, I think she's about five miles from the border right now. And um, because the main UN facility was so full, I think there are about 10,000 people around. Um, they're currently at a vocational school. I think they're sort of sleeping in their cars, um, ready to go at any minute. Um, I've been told they've been sleeping with their shoes on. Just any time they can hear the border is open, they'll get there. I think they have some food and water. Um, I know that there's a pretty good shortage of bottled water right now, but they still have some some well water to be drinking from. Has she talked to you at all about whether uh, potable water has been accessible outside of drinking water, electricity, et cetera? That's been one of the big points of debate, right? Israel had said that they turned on the water to southern Gaza, but without electricity, you can't get it running again. What has she told you? Yeah, it, it sounds like they have one workable spigot um, in the area that has pretty long lines at it um, and that, right, most of the facilities are out. I think the, the U.N. has sort of one, yeah, wow. one thing that they can use. Yeah. You know what I think is so striking about your mother, and it's been an honor for all of us to get to hear from her throughout this. She, she went into Gaza knowing there would be some risk, certainly not this, but some risk. But in many respects, she was born to do work like this. Yeah, I think it's been um, interesting to see how sort of her she's developed from the fact that right. So her um, her mother was escaped. Her her family escaped um, anti-Jewish persecution in Belarus and in Eastern Europe. And her father's family escapes um, religious persecution in Iran and a war in southern Lebanon. And so I think that. She's been she's grown up with this feeling of of the family running away and knowing what that's like. And so I think going back and helping people in that same situation has been something that's really close to her as she's 
she's grown as a doctor. And I mean, just doing rural medicine in America, too, is yeah. honestly pretty tough as well. Yeah. You know, we're just looking at pictures of the, the two of you together sort of around the world. I, I just before you go, I wonder if in your conversations with her, she has struggled with leaving. Right. She knows she has to go. But at the same time, she's a pediatric oncologist. The whole reason she went is to help children in the most dire of situations. And this is the most dire of situations. I wonder how she wrestles with that. Yeah, I think that's really hard. I mean, I think one thing that um, has been hard for her to see firsthand is for a lot of work she does, it's with kids with chronic illnesses, right? Kids who need chemo or sort of constant checking on on different biological things. So um, when you have attacks like this, when you have violence like this, the infrastructure is gone too. So while there's a lot of medical need in Gaza, there's it's a lot of very much like primary care and things like that. And what what really is just impossible in these situations is really the work that she goes over there to do because there's no way that you can have kids on chemo right now or yeah. or care for things that, that aren't immediate actionable things that for health, but are things that, that she's going to do. So in a lot of ways she even she can't even go what she went do what she went there to do right now. That's a very important point. Daniel Preston, thank you. Um, hope she gets home safe to you very soon. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. You too. President Biden says the dysfunction in Washington is making the U.S. less safe. What he said about the impact of the political ineptitude here at home. Also, it is Monday and the House of Representatives is still without a speaker. We'll talk to you about where the votes now stand and how likely this could last uh, what Democrats are proposing. Does the dysfunction that we've seen in Congress increase the danger in the world? Yes. Look, this is not your father's Republican Party. 30% of it is made up of these MAGA Republicans who are maybe, democracy is something I don't, they don't look at it the same way you and I look at democracy. That was President Biden speaking last night on 60 Minutes about the infighting among House Republicans nearly two weeks after Kevin McCarthy was ousted as speaker. Now, Congressman Jim Jordan, who's hoping to succeed McCarthy, is working the phones throughout the course of the weekend, going into today, trying to bring holdouts to his side ahead of a full House vote that could happen on Tuesday. Let's go to CNN's Lauren Fox live on Capitol Hill. Lauren, break it down. Does he have anywhere near the numbers that he needs to actually clinch the speakership? Yeah, Phil, he's not there yet. That is what we are learning from conversations over the weekend. And one thing to be clear on is the holdouts right now are not the hardliners that you might be used to seeing from past iterations of this fight, but instead some moderates and more establishment Republicans who are deeply concerned about Jim Jordan potentially being rewarded after many of his backers tried to block Steve Scalise and were successful in Scalise not getting the speakership last week. So there's so much bad blood, so much tension, so much frustration right now within Republican ranks that this could go on for a while. Right now, House Republicans are slated to meet behind closed doors around 6.30 p.m. tonight. This is one of many meetings we have seen over the course of the last several weeks among House Republicans, and yet they are no closer to electing a speaker. As you noted, Jordan's office is making very clear that he's having conversations, he is trying to move members. But the biggest question right now is you have a block of members who are arguing that they may go to the floor and block Jim Jordan. 
One of the questions has been, if you went to the floor, would members start to get to yes on whatever candidate was before them? But what we are hearing from our sources is the fact that actually that is not going to happen because some of these members are dug in, saying that they are never going to support Jim Jordan. A lot can change in Congress. As this war in Israel continues and this goes on and on and on, there becomes a question of when do Republicans come together and say enough is enough, we need to find someone. But at this moment, it doesn't look like Jim Jordan has the support he needs. All right, Lauren Fox for us. Keep us posted. Thank you. Well, strong words from President Biden after the murder of a six-year-old Muslim American boy. We have a live report from Chicago on the hate crime investigation. That's next. Also, the president issuing this warning about how the war in the Middle East could increase threats here at home. Because of what we're seeing in the Middle East is the threat of terrorism in the United States increased. Yes. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, this morning, investigators in Chicago are looking into a horrific attack on a six-year-old boy and his mother. The sheriff says their landlord targeted them because they are Muslim. He is now facing first-degree murder and hate crimes charges after he reportedly stabbed the child 26 times. He killed him and seriously wounded his mother. Whitney Wilde has a reporting live from Chicago for us. Whitney, my God. Uh, it's awful, Poppy. It's really horrible. Uh, here's what police describe. Uh, they said they got a call around 1140 Saturday morning regarding a stabbing. And when they showed up, they found the suspect, Joseph Zuba, sitting outside the family's home near the driveway. And when they walked into this home, it's difficult to describe uh, the horror they were walking into. They said they found the two victims in a bedroom. The mother had been stabbed more than a dozen times. That little boy had been stabbed 26 times. Both were rushed to the hospital. The mother is expected to survive. But sadly, that little boy was killed in this incident. Again, police saying that they have enough information about this incident to charge this man with hate crimes, uh, although he did not make a statement. The Council on American Islamic Relations has a Chicago chapter, and they are helping the family through this extremely difficult time. Here's what the executive director of the Chicago chapter said. He was a lovely boy who loved his family, his friends. He loved soccer. He loved basketball. And he paid the price for the atmosphere of hate. He has no clue about these larger issues happening in the world, but he was made to pay for it. This was, uh, again, just horrific. And it was actually the Council on American Islamic Relations, which provided more detail to help illustrate why police are charging this man with hate crimes. They said uh, that the mother had texted the father from the hospital describing this, that this man, uh, Joseph Zuba, came into the house. Uh, he tried to choke her, proceeded to attack her with a knife and yelled, you Muslim must die. Poppy Phil. Whitney, President Biden and the First Lady both weighed in last night on what happened. What did they say? 
Uh, well, they are. I mean, they have children. Any parent knows how horrific and, and sad uh, and just devastating this would be. Uh, here's what uh, President Biden said. The, chal the child's Palestinian Muslim family came to America seeking what we all seek, a refuge to live, learn, and pray in peace. This horrific act of hate has no place in America and stands against our fundamental values, freedom from fear for how we pray, what we believe, and who we are. And, you know, I think it's worth noting here, uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations says that there had, had never been an incident. They lived there for two years, no problems, a switch flipped, and they believe it was directly related uh, to the conflict in the Middle East. Back to you. Whitney, thank you for that reporting. Tragic. Well, as we just heard, the war between Israel and Hamas appears to be fueling hate and tensions at home. FBI Director Christopher Wray warning of rising threats in the United States, in particular against Jews and Muslim groups. We have seen an increase in reported threats to these groups here in the United States, and we're moving quickly to mitigate them. So we're working closely with our partners in state and local law enforcement through our JTTFs, our Joint Terrorism Task Forces, to ensure that together we stay laser focused on mitigating threats we have identified and continue sharing intelligence to keep our communities safe. Joining us now, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and Mikhail kotler wunsch Israel's special envoy for combating anti-Semitism. Guys, thanks for joining us. Andy, I want to start with you. What the FBI director says regarding moving quickly to mitigate what they're seeing right now, given the increase. What does that mean? Well, Phil, it can mean a whole bunch of different things, depending on the sort of threat that the FBI is focused on. So if they have credible uh, information about a specific threat, that will prompt an investigation by the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force in the community where that threat exists. The Joint Terrorism Task Forces, there's about 200 of them around the country. They are made up of FBI agents and local partners for exactly this purpose. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, it may simply mean reaching out to state and local officials or community officials, people in the faith-based community, to explain what these threats are, to help people understand what the threats are and to protect themselves during times of elevated risk. You know, Michal, you just returned from Israel. Your children, I believe, are serving. Is that right? I live there. I actually yes. just came to be able to engage here. Thank you for what you do and for what they are doing right now as well. C can you speak to, it's one thing to combat this hate after you see it. It's another thing to work to change it from the, out, from, from the inside out. Can you talk about that work in a moment like this? Well, I'll say uh, the hate that we just saw is awful uh, in the case of the story that we yes. just, about this little six-year-old boy. I'll say that with the genocidal terrorists um, that bludgeoned and murdered and raped and burned, that tore babies out of their mother's arms just last Saturday morning as we were celebrating the Sabbath and a festival of joy um, in Israel that turned into living hell. For thousands, uh, we know that there are 199 abducted, but we also know that thousands were murdered and thousands are lying in the hospitals. That kind of genocidal hate, um, I'd say, fueled by a deep hatred, not only for the state of Israel, but for Jews. And the Hamas charter, just like Mein Kampf, actually stipulates clearly that its goal is to annihilate the state of Israel and to murder Jews. That kind of hate, I think, is not one we can understand here in the United States also, how do you combat it 
so most effectively, do you believe? I, I think that one of our biggest challenges is to identify, it's part of the reason that I'm here, that it's the same anti-Semitic hate that actually enabled or fueled denial, justification, excusing for those heinous crimes, for the murder of entire families, for piling up 20 young boys one on the other and igniting them in front of their parents. If there is somebody that cannot condemn that unequivocally, then there is not anything that we can do without identifying the anti-Semitism that fuels it. In order to be able to address or identify anything, we have to first define it. And anti-Semitism is defined not only as what we see here on the ground in protests and what we hear is we are Hamas or in university campuses where we hear a legitimization of what it was that happened last Saturday. But actually, in many ways, the understanding that anti-Zionism is our modern form of anti-Semitism. It's imperative that we understand that if we're going to be able to identify and combat it. Andrew, from a law enforcement perspective, I mean, what Mihal is laying out right now, how complicated is this moment uh, given kind of the various threads, platforms, all of the different dynamics fueling this? It's incredibly complicated, Phil. It's, you know, uh, it's primary in the role of every counterterrorism official in this country is watching events overseas, understanding that terrorist attacks overseas can often inspire or drive reactionary attacks here in the homeland. So that's what they're looking for. I can, I can guarantee that the FBI is reaching out to their partners in the Jewish community and the Muslim community uh, in, in, with concern over crimes like we saw in Chicago over the weekend. Uh, in addition, they're talking to informants, to sources of information. They're helping state and local officials protect locations that might be at greater risk. Um, there's no question in my mind that the folks in the counterterrorism division at the FBI are working 24-7 right now with their eyes on this potential threat. All right, Andrew McCabe and Mikhail Cutler-Wunsch, thank you very much. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Along Israel's border with Gaza, more than 300,000 soldiers, tanks, heavy equipment, artillery await orders. One of the big issues for the IDF to distinguish between Hamas and civilians. We may have experienced war before, but what's happening right now is unprecedented. Israel has the right to defend itself, but he said that they should not occupy Gaza. I think it'd be a big mistake. The way that Israel does this matters. We are going to destroy Hamas. They opened this war. We are going to win it. The work to rescue hostages, including Americans, is becoming more complicated. The president has no higher priority than getting Americans back safe. Those are innocent civilians. They have rights. What we saw was the closest thing to the Holocaust that we've seen in 80 years. I don't have another home. I don't have another land. We're on the edge of the abyss here. That slogan of never again, it wasn't a suggestion. It's something that we intend to act on. Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is live for us in Tel Aviv, Israel. Right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also in Israel, meeting again with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The dire humanitarian crisis is escalating in Gaza, and an Israeli ground offensive appears to be imminent. Blinken said this morning the U.S. is, quote, actively working to ensure that humanitarian assistance like water, food, and medicine can get into Gaza. Secretary of State Blinken also said yesterday a safe passageway into Egypt via the Rafah crossing in the south would be open as half a million people have fled northern Gaza to southern Gaza. But overnight, those negotiations appear to have stalled. The Israeli prime minister's office just saying, quote, at the moment, there is neither 
a ceasefire nor humanitarian assistance in the Gaza Strip in return for the exit of foreigners. And brand new this morning, Israel says now 199 people are being held hostage, up from about 155 just yesterday. We are covering this from across the world. Let's begin with CNN anchor Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv, Israel. Aaron, last hour you heard explosions. This has been such a dynamic situation every single day. What's happening on the ground right now? Yes. All right, what's happening there? And we did hear explosions, as you said, just about an hour ago. Uh, we, we've heard them through the night. And as I said, Israeli helicopters, Israeli Air Force. So you've heard all of that. Uh, this is this is the tempo that we've been experiencing. I will say sort of that that uh, the heavy landing of explosions in Gaza that had become that that rumbling background that you sort of feel in your body, even here. Uh, we have not heard so much of that this morning, but we do know the Israeli Air Force struck about 250 targets in Gaza just yesterday, as everyone waits. I should say you mentioned that Rafah border crossing, that crucial crossing between Gaza and Egypt that remains closed. The Egyptian foreign minister just moments ago saying there is no progress in any efforts to open up that border, which is so crucial for anybody getting out, but most importantly for humanitarian aid uh, getting in, which would be uh, at the very least what is so desperately needed there. Uh, but that is the very latest that we're hearing on the ground here, as of course you're in this moment of pause and waiting. Again, an incredibly quiet and anxious country waiting for the go. Uh, as right now, you mentioned, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu here have officially begun their meetings where I am in Tel Aviv, Phil and Poppy. You know, Aaron, we heard over the weekend Israel warning about talking about uh, the next phase of the war. You were with us all last week, really on the border there uh, with Gaza, and you saw troops massing, and that has increased since. What is your sense on the ground of how imminent this next phase on the ground likely will be? Well, of course, we, we've observed that and our, and our teams along that border continue to see the readiness. And it is, is ready. And as we've said, more than 300,000, 350, 360,000 troops amassed there. There is only so long you can wait. Uh, the real question had been when Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, came back again today. Right? Nobody knew that was going to happen until yesterday. He was here at the end of last week meeting with the prime minister. So the question was, well, why was he returning? Was that perhaps to influence uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on what he would do in Gaza or when he would go to try to slow it down. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was here yesterday with a bipartisan senatorial delegation, which included Senator Romney. And he said, no, he didn't think that was the reason, that the reason was to keep negotiations on track, which at least if you look at in terms of the border crossing itself, this crucial, very specific thing that there's been negotiations on, there has been no progress uh, as of yet. No progress as of yet. And that, of course, is separate from what we now know to be 199 confirmed hostages being held in Gaza. We don't know the state of their injuries, alive, dead, where they're held, anything. But that obviously is the other crucial piece of this. And all of this coming in the context of what is a mass evacuation of people from Israel itself. Gaza, obviously, with, with, with 2 million people and 1 million supposedly moving to the south of Gaza. Nowhere to go from there. But here in Israel, uh, America. Americans being given a means of egress to get out of a country that doesn't have many borders that you can get out of and an airport where international airlines are not at all or very rarely even serving it. Uh, CNN Sarah Seidner is in Haifa, Israel, speaking to American families boarding a ship. Sarah, because that's the way that the U.S. is doing this, essentially a military cruise ship, uh, something that a lot of Americans don't see when you hear about the, the power of the U.S. military. We don't often see what you're looking at, but that is an incredible ship, and that is being used for evacuation. 
Yeah, it's called Rhapsody of the Seas, uh, and it is a cruise ship by all accounts. You look at how massive it is. It can carry about uh, 2,000 plus passengers. Uh, what is interesting today is we know that there were 20,000 Americans uh, that contacted the State Department, contacted their embassy who were here in Israel. Not all of them wanted to leave, uh, but they were trying to get information as to whether they could leave uh, or any information from the State Department to make sure that they can stay safe, whether in this country or in order to get out. Very, very hard to get out. Very few flights are going. So this was one of the ways the State Department decided to try uh, and get Americans out of Israel who wanted to leave. What we found interesting today is the numbers look very small compared to the number of people that can get on this ship. And by the way, this is not free for Americans. Americans will have to pay the government back. They will get a bill of some sort. Uh, we are told by the passengers that that is what they were told. But for now, they're able to get on this boat. What we are mostly seeing is families with children and often families with several children who just feel that this is the best thing for their families uh, and especially for the kids who have been quite frightened uh, by this war. Listen to one family's journey um, as they made it here to get on this boat, by the way, that will take 10 hours to get to Cyprus. I've been um, helping out with the war effort in every way that I can uh, for the last week. I've been driving soldiers to the front. I've been uh, you know, uh, volunteering, bringing medical equipment to the front in my, my small car. Uh, and I'm not leaving so much as getting out of the way. Uh, and I don't want to have another family that needs to be rescued should something go, so go, something should go wrong. Uh, but we'll be back as soon as the school year starts and we'll be uh, here to help out, do what we need to do and rebuild. So there, a lot of families, as you heard there, are, are a bit conflicted um, about whether they stay or whether they go. Uh, that's happening between family members. We talked to another family whose 14-year-old daughter said, I do not agree with my parents. We should stay here. We should not leave Israel. We should be here uh, to help out in any way possible. So it is an interesting conundrum for families uh, who are trying to figure out whether to stay or go. A lot of people, obviously, they're U.S. citizens, but they live here um, in Israel. And, and those families seem to have the most conflict about what it is they should do. But for safety and especially for the children, um, they are really looking at that as the reason that they need to leave Israel for now. Aaron. Yeah, I know, Sarah, when you think about it, 100,000 dual Israeli-American citizens, many of them truly live here. Uh, you know, I was talking to a family. They were going to be getting on one of the Al-Al flights uh, to the United States where they have family, but extremely conflicted. But again, as you point out, young children. And we do know that Americans who are able to get from Tel Aviv uh, to, you know, there are some you know, charter flights being operated to Athens. And in Athens, you know, U.S. commercial carriers, Delta, right. United, are picking up a lot of capacity to, to get those Americans home. Um, Sarah, we know, where you are, what is the what is the feeling? I mean, it is such a small country, right? The distances between where you are, mm. I are, any yes. borders. I mean, it's all incredibly small relative to the American sense of consciousness. But when you talk about where you're standing, you've got Lebanon to the north. You've got what's going on to Gaza and the south. What is the anxiety and the sense of how imminent action is where you are? Yeah, you've got Syria and Lebanon to the north, uh, there on the Golan Heights, uh, and of course you have uh, Gaza to the south. Um, look, this is a place that gets sirens, and the sirens aren't because of what's coming over from Gaza. The sirens will start going off because 
the rockets that may be coming over from Lebanon. Uh, you know, Hezbollah is in Lebanon, is, a, is an enemy of Israel in every sense of the world, uh, also is funded by Iran, and they have a lot of munitions. Uh, we have seen some fighting, uh, according to the uh, Israeli military there, uh, in that border area. We are a little bit beyond the border. We are not right up on the border, but certainly Haifa is a target. Um, you know, look, Israel is a target. They can shoot uh, missiles from Lebanon and hit Tel Aviv. Uh, that, when that happened, actually, about 14 or 15 years ago, when they discovered that they had that kind of range coming from Lebanon, uh, there are hospitals that have built bunkers uh, to deal with that because they realized that Tel Aviv, which was generally a place that didn't see much rocket fire, uh, they realized just how, um, how dangerous it might be, how vulnerable they may be, even in Tel Aviv, from all the way to the north of the country. Um, th this is really a remarkable moment uh, in the history uh, of Israel. Um, it, you know, there's a long, long battle that had conflict that has been going on between the Palestinian and the Israelis. Uh, and this is probably the, the biggest one that we uh, have seen so far in our lifetimes. Um, it, to watch this play out, it yes. brings a lot of fear. It brings a lot of anxiety, obviously in Israel, but very much so in Gaza, where yes. people are really trapped. And I think the juxtaposition, Aaron, between what is happening in Gaza, where people can't get out or are almost impossible to get out, very difficult to get out, and what is happening here. I mean, look, we're in a, the Haifa port. Um, you know, it's open. People can come here as long as they signed up for it, get on a boat and get out of here. Yeah. Um, it's just a very different feeling. Aaron. Yeah, it absolutely is. An interesting fill in poppy, though, as Sarah says, the palpable sense of fear. I think, you know, when we have all reported from Ukraine, you get a siren, right? Obviously, those those missiles are, are coming from very far away. So you have time. There's less anxiety when a siren goes off. There's also the possibility uh, that 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 missile uh, or, or, or plane could be dropping that in a very wide swath yeah. of space. That is not the case here, right? When you have sirens go off here, it's because they know it's a very tiny space where that rocket could land. So the other night up here, you know, we did have, we've, we've had plenty of explosions here, but the sirens We're went off. Uh, the former Israeli prime minister was with me. You know, his security detail had found a place um, you know, where he would go and sort of run down two flights of stairs. Because when you get the siren, it means the risk is real. People here take it seriously. They do run for cover. There isn't the sense of, well, it happens so often and it's not a real risk, so we're just going to continue with our daily lives. That does not happen here. And that is a very different feeling mm -hmm. than we experience in Ukraine. And it's because of the proximity of the missiles and also because of the specificity of the Iron Dome's ability to to say what space is actually at risk from being hit by that incoming rocket. Yeah, it's such a good point. I want to turn now to CNN military analyst, uh, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. To that point, you know, the proximity here, the density, particularly as uh, it appears Israel is about to launch uh, one of the more significant urban warfare campaigns that we've seen in a long period of time. Intelligence has to be critical right. in this moment. Right. How good is the IDF's intelligence? Well, they're gaining, Phil. That's the only thing you can say. They lost attention. They lost focus. That's pretty obvious on Gaza over the last couple of years. They've seen it as a political movement. They haven't paid as much attention to it. So whenever you take your eye off the ball, even slightly, and I'm saying it may have been just slightly, you lose some intelligence factor. When you have things like hostages and the potential to strike targets or even a ground invasion or a ground incursion, you have to have intelligence to drive your operation, to tell you where to go, 
what to target, what to see. And that's the problem that they have right now. They're trying to gain more intelligence back from what they've missed over the last couple months. A really significant development overnight for people just joining us. Israel now says 199 hostages. That's way up from where right. it was 24 hours ago. Big concern is the tunnel operation and where those hostages may be held. Can you compare the sophistication and the breadth of Hamas's tunnels now to almost a decade ago, 2014. Yeah, well, this this is a very simplistic diagram to show the kinds of exit routes they have from buildings to underground tunnel locations. So it shows, you know, two high-rise apartments, one smaller apartment going down a, a group of stairs. This doesn't really paint the picture, Poppy. These stairs, these shafts go down probably hundreds of feet, and they are all over Gaza, mostly in the populated area. Inside the tunnels, which, you know, this shows one tunnel with a bunch of guys uh, coming through it with rifles, that's not an indicator of the complexity of these tunnels. There are hundreds of miles of tunnels mm -hmm. underneath Gaza. They are mainly in the three, po the major populated areas in the north, the center, and the south. So what you're seeing here is the ability for uh, Hamas to move around to establish strong point defenses and to hide hostages. Now we know there's 199. They can put them through that entire 25 by two mile area that's Gaza itself. The other thing that's important is, you know, the, the US military has trained on cave complexes, which are similar to tunnels. When you go in as an assaulting force into a tunnel, you are at a huge disadvantage because the defenders, in this case Hamas, know where they want to be, set up positions, can fire on you. We've had training events where five or six people can hold off hundreds of attackers inside of a tunnel or inside of a cave complex. Can I show you just, we have some of the videos of kind of the tunnel complexes, what they look like in terms of the entrances um, over time. And I think one of the big questions right now as you look at these is there have been updates. They never stop yeah. necessarily building. And so gathering the most uh, recent intelligence is so critical here. You know, if you're a, a military officer planning the logistics of this operation, what are you seeing here? I, I'm saying to myself, first of all, oh, crap, this is hard. The second thing I'm saying is you can't put many soldiers in here to attack. And when you do, they are stuck in there. There's only one way in and one way out. And then once you get in there, you're curving around, you're going different routes, it breaks off, and you can't resupply them. So you have to be carrying your ammunition and all your equipment on your back when you go into here. And that makes it even tougher because these things are tight. Imagine yourself going through this with a pack on with a lot of stuff. Um, but, but then there's just the requirement for light, for night vision devices, for the ability to know where the enemy is. And again, when you're targeting or when you're gaining intelligence above ground, you can have different uh, intelligence drones or uh, overhead platforms saying, here's where the enemy is. You can't do that underground. It's very difficult to do. So it all just lends more complexity to the battlefield. It's not even though this time about just striking them and destroying them and killing terrorists inside of them. It's about assuming that there are hostages right. being held by the terrorists in them. That is a completely different scenario than 2014 or before. Right. And not only are, do you have hostages, but the fact that Hamas can move them around because these Constantly. tunnels are so complex. Yeah, it's tough. Constantly. Thank you, General. You're Appreciate welcome. Appreciate it very yes, much. Appreciate it. Well, we're going to hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken shortly as the Biden administration works to prevent a wider international crisis. We're going to bring you those remarks live. We will also be speaking with a survivor of the Hamas attack on the Nova Music Festival. 
who spoke with Secretary Blinken about it and finding her friends taken hostage. That message I had. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. President Biden sounding off on the war between Israel and Hamas in a sweeping interview with 60 Minutes. The president touched on bringing the American hostages home and whether U.S. troops could be sent into combat. Also talked about the crucially needed humanitarian quarter in Gaza and his message to the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. We're saying we're going to do everything in our power to find those who are still alive and set them free. Everything in our power. And uh, I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but there's uh, we're working like hell on. Can you foresee U.S. troops in combat in this new Middle East war? I, I don't think that's necessary. Israel has one of the finest fighting forces in the country. I guarantee we're going to provide them everything they need. You would like to see a humanitarian corridor that allows some of the two million Gazans out of the area? Yes. You would like to see humanitarian supplies brought into Gaza? Yes. So you do not agree with the Israeli total siege of the Gaza Strip? I'm confident that Israel is going to act under the major, the the rules of war. Would you support Israeli occupation of Gaza at this point? I think it'd be a big mistake. Do you believe that Hamas must be eliminated entirely? Uh, Yes, I do. But... There needs to be a Palestinian authority. There needs to be a, a path to a Palestinian state. I wonder what is your message to Hezbollah and its backer, Iran? Don't. Don't, don't, don't. Don't come across the border. Don't escalate this war. That's right. CNN's Christian Mampour is live in London with more. And Christian, obviously, they try to do with words everything they can to avoid a larger war. Uh, but nonetheless, Biden saying that uh, while Hamas must be eliminated, uh, reoccupying Gaza would be a mistake. How do you read between the lines here of what he's saying and most any. important, what Israel and its enemies are hearing? There aren't any lines to read between. The fact is that we do not know, and nor do the Israelis and nor do the Americans know, what the final end game is. What do you do when and if you destroy and decapitate and decimate Hamas, politically and militarily, if it's possible? Uh, what is the final uh, end game? So that is an issue. The wider war that the United States is trying to head off, uh, given that uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is doing a real shuttle diplomacy across all those major Middle Eastern capitals, uh, Uh, That is also uh, a a real problem. What happens? He said don't when uh, asked about Hamas, uh, rather Hezbollah and Iran. Iran's foreign minister meeting with Hamas in Qatar, having been also to meet with Hezbollah, has basically now said that Iran will not stand idly by if the airstrikes against Palestinians continue. What does that mean? The United States has already... Israel, rather, has already bombed uh, airstrips in Syria, both in Damascus and in Aleppo, and there are constant skirmishes across the border. Interestingly, Israel has not said that it sees a smoking gun from Iran. Clearly, nobody wants to get into that kind of war. And then, Erin, on the humanitarian side, this is also hugely complex because, yes, it is closed. 
to all intents and purposes. But I've been speaking to Arab leaders and officials who are very concerned about a, quote, exodus. Where are all these Palestinians being pushed from northern Gaza, which is right. what Israel says it wants to capture? Because they do not want to see Palestinians pushed permanently out of Gaza and then potentially never being allowed to come back. They also don't want to see that as a, um, as a precedent. What happens if certain Israelis, the right-wingers who want to, have always thought, for instance, Jordan is a Palestinian homeland. They don't want to see that kind of uh, process happening yes. in the West Bank. So this is hugely complicated right now and not as simple. Uh, well, it's clearly not simple, but just the idea of humanitarian corridors yeah. is also yeah. very, very complex. Right, and strident criticism, vocal criticism of uh, the civilian situation in Gaza from the King of Jordan as well as from the leader of Egypt, uh, making it very clear how they feel there. But, Christian, uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, just came back here. So he's actually, as you and I are talking, meeting yeah. with the Israeli Prime Minister. Um, no one had expected him to come back, right? He was here at the end of last week. Uh, then he decided last night, or it was announced last night, he would return. The question was, what was he returning for? Is he returning to try to get Netanyahu to, to pause or to consider or to pull back? Uh, or is he simply coming to 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 assist in, in negotiations over border crossings? We will have a press conference from them in a few moments. But what do you really think is happening behind those closed doors, Christian? Well, I think all of the above, frankly. Uh, the United States is trying to keep it from spilling over. It has to uh, support Israel's uh, right to self-defense, but it wants to make sure, if it's at all possible, to keep it within certain parameters. Uh, also, uh, you know, the United States is implicated. It is involved because 29 at least of its citizens have been killed and there are apparently potentially uh, Israeli-American hostages. So the U.S. is absolutely involved. But some people are, are, are cautioning, you know, the U.S. was asked, would they put boots on the ground, right, in that 60 minutes? And Biden said, don't think it's necessary. The U.S. is sending strike forces to the sea around Gaza and around Israel. What for? Is that to cover? Is that for covering fire? What is it for? And just go back all the way to 1983 when the U.S. sent warships outside Lebanon and in support of Israel was involved in that war. And it had a terrible, terrible backlash against the United States. Massive uh, killings at the U.S. military barracks in Beirut and on and on and on. It was the the beginning of really serious yes. anti-American backlash in that part of the world. So that has to be considered as well. And, and also the hostages, Christian. I mean, last night, you know, you, yeah. you point out in the 60 Minutes interview, President Biden saying no need for U.S. troops on the ground. Of course, John Kirby had, had left it on the table that when it comes to U.S. hostages, we're not going to take anything off the table as to whether you would need any kind of U.S. military power involved in that in Gaza. Now, not taking it off the table isn't the same thing as saying you're going to do it. But nonetheless, there is still that uncertainty, right? You have Americans being held hostage, and that is a whole new thing here. Well, it is. Uh, and as I say, those hostage uh, situations mostly started back there in, in Lebanon after a certain, you know, after what I just told you about. The thing is, the hostages, according to Israeli experts and, and former hostage negotiators and IDF people, they will not be able to be uh, 
you know, released or, or, or found without a ground incursion. It's only on the ground that you can get to those hostages. You already had a discussion yeah. about the parameters and the dangers of that. And the question now is, truly the question is, if it's true that some of those hostages have already been killed in airstrikes, and we haven't had confirmation, but that's what Hamas has said, is Israel's right. first uh, priority to save the hostages, or is it first, and I'm talking about in a ground incursion, or is it to decimate Hamas around Gaza City and in the north of Gaza? And that is a question that we don't know the answer to yet. All right. Well, Christiana Mampour, thank you very much. And Poppy, I should say the context here, unless this has changed overnight in strikes, is that the IDF says they've taken out about a 10, 10 senior uh, Hamas commanders. They say there are many more that they need to, but that already without even going as far as a ground incursion with the airstrikes that we've seen so far, at least 10 senior commanders have been killed. And, the, and they've been saying that, Aaron, right, to talk about the questions about their intelligence and how strong that is or is not in Gaza. Aaron, Thank you so much. We'll get back to you very, very soon. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in Israel, as Aaron was saying this morning. Uh, as the country says Hamas is holding more hostages than previously thought, Israel announced overnight that no number of hostages has increased to 199 people. We know hostages were taken from the Nova Music Festival, where Hamas killed at least 260 people. Lior Gelbaum was at that festival with one of her friends, one of her dear friends, David Newman, was murdered there. Another, Inbar Hyman, was taken hostage by Hamas. You see her there. Lior survived and escaped, and last week she shared her devastating story with Secretary Blinken when he visited Tel Aviv. You just saw him there with the secretary. She pleaded with him to help rescue her kidnapped friend. Listen. We managed to escape. But there are a lot of friends that didn't, and there are a lot of friends that are kept captive now in Gaza. And we were saved by miracle, but there are friends that we love that we Lior Gelbaum joins me now along with her father, Eitan. Thank you so much for being here. And as we talk, I want to keep the picture up as we can of your friend Inbar so that everyone can see her. Her face, um, I know you've just been pleading with the United States, with anyone who will listen to help. Can you take me back, Lior, to that conversation with the Secretary of State? Yes, of course. Good morning. Um, the meeting actually happened very spontaneously. Me, my boyfriend, Khalil, and our mothers uh, went volunteering at the uh, Brothers and Sisters in Arms Organization Donation Center. Uh, we were packaging, uh, helping with the packaging. Um, then two uh, embassy representatives came up to us. They, they found out that we were survivors from the Nova Festival. They asked us if we would be willing to meet with Mr. Blinken. Mm. Um, a couple of hours later, we met him and uh, it was, Amazing. It was really touching. I, I was very emotional. I had little time to practice what I wanted to say mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. So eventually everything that I said came from the bottom of my heart. Um, it, he was very touched. I, I was very, very excited. I really felt him comforting me. I felt like he was a friend that cared for me and for us and for my story. He cared. And I could tell he, he was very emotional too. 
I'm so sorry that you lost David, your, your dear friend as well. Um, may his memory be a blessing, certainly. I wonder for you, Lior, as you grapple with this, the loss of your dear friend, the hope that they will be able to find your dear friend, and the fact that you survived it all. How does all of that weigh on you? It's complicated. It's frustrating. I care so much for Inbar and almost 200 hostages that are held in Gaza. We don't know their situation. Um, all I ask is they get medical care, proper medical care. I ask for prayers for them and for us and, and just bring them home. We, we need them home. There are parents and children and brothers and sisters that were celebrating life in the Nova Festival and other people that were just in their houses. They were taken from their houses. It's really devastating and horrific. And the way, Eitan, listening to your daughter speaking to Secretary Blink and the way she described, you know, a day of horror, I think are the words that you used your, uh, in what was supposed to be a joyous celebration uh, across Israel, certainly a joyous celebration at the music festival. And Eitan, she talked about being saved by a miracle. Talk to us about what that was like when you got to hold your daughter again. So um, uh, that, that day uh, we woke up, we, we, we heard the sirens, the rocket sirens around 7 a.m. And we knew that the daughter, that the girls were, um, were at the party. And um, but but this time the rockets uh, the, the salvo was a little bit more intense and uh, it felt like this was a little bit different. Um, but the girls immediately immediately texted us. They told us everything was fine and that they were on their way out. Mm. Um, and uh, a few minutes later, we began seeing pictures of what to me looked like ISIS terrorists in the middle of towns in uh, <clears throat> in southern Israel. Uh, at that point, I pretty much uh, almost fainted because I, I understood that this was uh, not just another attack, but this was something much more significant. And then it dawned on me that the girls were exactly in that area. Um, my wife, Edna, uh, was just sitting, uh, you know, almost paralyzed. We were tracking them uh, in real time, um, you know, trying to give them directions where to go, trying to piece together some information that could be helpful for them. And all this time I'm thinking, my goodness, this is, it's going to be a slaughter. It's an open area with thousands of people, um, potentially uh, um, uh, surrounded by, uh, by, by ISIS, uh, Hamas uh, terrorists who, with, who have just one intention, which is to, to kill as many people as possible. Uh, now for us, uh, 90 minutes uh, later, they called us from the police station where they managed to make it to. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll say it was luck, but a lot of very good decisions that they made. Um, and just uh, it, it, the nightmare that we went through for 90 minutes is nothing compared to the nightmare that the friends and families and the hostages are going through every second, every second and every moment since last Saturday. Yeah. Of, of course, I'm so... We're all so grateful you have her back. And Lior, I'll just echo what Secretary Blinken said to you. It is so brave and important that you have shared this story and continue to share this story because the world needs to hear it. Please keep us posted if you hear anything, of course, on NPAR. And thank you. Thank you.
Well, Israeli soldiers are bracing for a potential deadly second front on the Lebanon border. CNN's Matthew Chance was given exclusive access to the front lines to see how those soldiers are preparing. Are you hopeful still that Hezbollah will stay out of this war? I hope there will be another front. We need to destroy Hezbollah. You, th- you hope there will be another front? Yes. You want the war? Yes. Why? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We're live in Israel, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other officials again today. This is the second meeting in just a few days. Moments from now, the two are expected to hold a joint news conference. All eyes around the world will be on that and what they say, what's different from what was said just a few days ago. It comes as humanitarian aid deliveries accumulate at Egypt's Rafah border crossing. So at the crossing, not going into Gaza. That is where, of course, uh, you've got two million people uh, trapped, so many trying to get out, not able to move in Gaza, including hundreds of Palestinian Americans, people with American citizenship. And confusion continues over when that crossing will open and even if that crossing will open, because we've been told multiple times that it's opening and it simply never has yet. While Israel bottles Hamas, there, of course, are threats from the north where Israel has now built up a massive military presence as well because of threats from the Iranian-backed militia Hezbollah uh, coming from both Lebanon and Syria in the north. Let's go to CNN's Matthew Chance, who is live in northern Israel. And Matthew, uh, you've got this exclusive access to see this buildup, a front line with Israeli defense forces, hundreds of thousands of troops down here, but they're building up a massive force to try to prevent a second front from opening up. It's been incredibly dangerous, though, where you are. What have you seen? Yeah, it is an incredibly dangerous, volatile area because it's here in northern Israel that this conflict inside the country could really become uh, a regional war if uh, the step is taken by Hezbollah to throw its rockets over here into Israeli towns like this one, uh, Kiryat Shimona, uh, not far from the Lebanese border. There's already been quite serious artillery exchanges and rocket fire from Hezbollah positions inside Lebanon. And within the past few hours, the Israeli military has announced the evacuation of 28 uh, villages, uh, Israeli settlements close to the Lebanese border because of the very dangerous security situation. They're bracing for a dangerous second front. But we gain exclusive access to Israel's tense northern frontier. Well, the Israeli army have now sealed off as a security zone some of the areas close to the Lebanese border because of the threat being posed, but they're they're taking us now um, to the closest period, the closest place they can do that they say is safe to see the lay of the land. And that land is hostile. None of the Israeli soldiers here wanted their faces shown to hide their identities from Hezbollah, the powerful Lebanese militia with a vast arsenal trained on these positions from across the border. We're ready. If they choose to come, they'll make a huge mistake. War with Hezbollah would be brutal, said this senior Israeli commander, who asked not to be identified. But it is now also necessary, he told me. Do you believe there will be a second front open here, or are you hopeful still that Hezbollah will stay out of this war? I hope there will be another front. 
We need to destroy Hezbollah. You, th- you hope there will be another front? Yes. You want the war? Yes. Why? What Hamas did in Gaza, it didn't come from nowhere. It came from Hezbollah, it came from Iran. And in order for us to stop what happened from Hamas, we need to stop them also. All right, well, this is as close as the Israeli military say we can go. Just across there is territory of Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah, the Lebanese uh, militia. And Israeli soldiers in this position in Israel uh, tell us that over the past few days there have been multiple attempts by Hezbollah fighters to penetrate the fence and to come into Israel, but they've been fought back. If there is going to be a second front in this war in Israel, the likelihood is it's going to start here. Already there have been exchanges of fire, forcing local Israelis to flee, terrified what happened in Israel's south could happen here too. A terrorist attack at this scale has never happened, and I'm scared that I live on the border. What's to stop them from doing it here? I want to be strong and I want to come back and live here, but but I need to think about my kids first. Back from the border, Israel is bolstering its forces with some of the 360,000 troops mobilized after the Hamas attacks last week. If war in the north is coming, Israel seems ready, even bristling to fight. Well, Aaron, after those brutal attacks from Gaza, I can tell you Israel is in no mood to compromise. Every one of the soldiers, the civilians here, the politicians that we've spoken to, um, say that they will unleash destruction on Lebanon and anywhere else if a second front opens up here. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you very much from northern Israel and some breaking developments from the White House at this hour. Priscilla Alvarez uh, is there. And Priscilla, what are you learning right now? Aaron, just minutes ago, the White House announced that President Biden is postponing his trip to Colorado today where it was he was going to make a stop for his Investing in America tour. Instead, the White House says that President Biden will remain here for national security meetings. Now, over the weekend, the president had been regularly updated by senior officials about the situation in Israel and Gaza. That will remain the case today. Now, CNN has also reported, according to sources, that Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu had invited President Biden to visit Israel soon. And both countries were discussing the possibility, though it was unclear whether this trip will happen and how advanced those conversations have been. And when I've asked the White House about this, they said that they have no new travel plans to announce. But clearly, Aaron, a lot of pressing issues ongoing in the region, be it the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the hostages being held by Hamas and any uh, and the, the White House hoping that this conflict does not widen or spread any further. We have not received an updated schedule for President Biden today, but he will instead spend the day getting those national security meetings. All right. Of course, the world does seem to be a bit uh, on this precipice as we feel it here in Tel Aviv as well. Priscilla Alvarez from the White House, thank you so very much. Phil. Thanks, Aaron. A six-year-old Muslim boy killed in a brutal attack in an act the governor of Illinois calls, quote, nothing short of evil. We're going to give you the shocking details of this hate crimes investigation next. 
colleagues have a simple choice. Yeah. They can either double or triple down on the chaos, dysfunction, and extremism, or let's have a real conversation about changing the rules of the House. If the radical, you know, almost just handful of people in the Republican side make it unable, make it us unable to be able to return to general work on the House, then I mm -hmm. think obviously there will, a deal will have to be done. House of Representatives still without a speaker. The House expected to vote on a speaker, a speaker vote tomorrow, but it doesn't appear at this point at least like Republican nominee Jim Jordan has the support he needs to secure the gavel. Republican strategist, former RNC communications director Doug Hyde joins us, along with CNN political analyst, host of the GRIO Weekly, Natasha Alford. Thanks both very much, Doug. All mm -hmm. you're the Republican on the, you're the Republican strategist. Help us out here. I laugh, but it's not funny at all in a moment like this for there to still be no speaker and Jim Jordan doesn't look close. Can those votes against him be swayed or is this going to end up in some sort of McHenry gets more power and the Democrats help out? Well, I, I apologize, Poppy. I don't know how helpful I can be because every Republican member I talk to uh, gives me a different answer or a lack of an answer. They just don't know what's going to happen, not over the next week, but over the next 24 to 36 hours. Um, obviously, Jim Jordan is pushing for a floor vote. That does make some sense, but it's not clear that he's going to get there. And I can tell you from having worked in House leadership back in 2012 through 2014, when we would have things like defund this and let's shut down this, we would refer to those as touch the stove moments that Republican members needed to touch the stove and learn that they'll get burned if they touch the stove that's hot. The reality is they've been leaning on the stove for a long time and they haven't gotten burned. At this point, they want to take over the oven and the entire kitchen, and it's not clear if they'll be able to do so yet. Natasha, to that point, I mean, they're literally pouring gasoline on themselves and just lighting themselves on fire at this point uh, and don't seem to be dissuaded by the burns at all. Uh, can you tell people why this matters? Like from a tangible perspective, beyond the kind of hilarity of the ineptitude and the ridiculousness of the moment. I mean, Jim Jordan represents an extreme rightward move of the Republican Party. He is aligned with Donald Trump. This is a person who refused to certify electoral votes, right? So when we're talking about the stakes for democracy right now, this is this is the the face of. Uh, anti-democratic uh, new norms that are being set. And I think that's why there's so many GOP moderates who are not excited about this option, uh, who are who are resisting actively. And they're saying, no, we're not going to reward this move to the extreme. You were able to, to get McCarthy out. Well, we're going to hold our ground. And, and just as Hakeem Jeffries called him an extremist extraordinaire, I think there are a lot of people on both sides who feel that way. But this was interesting, Doug, Jake's interview with Dan Crenshaw yesterday, who is a you know supporter of Jordan in this. He said the, the sort of tactic being taken by some of his fellow Republicans in the House is completely the wrong way to go. Here it is. What I, and what I would really recommend to Jordan's allies, too, is, is a lot of them have mounted this, this, this high-pressure campaign. They're going to they're gonna whip up Twitter against the people who are against Jordan. That is the dumbest way to support Jordan, and I'm supporting Jordan. The dumbest thing you can do is to continue pissing off those people and entrench them. Very subtle advice there, <laughs> Doug. But is he right? 
I think to some extent, yes. And look, we've seen in, in the House Republican conference uh, over the past few weeks, and you could argue over the past year, that there's just a lack of trust between members. And we refer to these meetings that they're going to have today and they'll have tomorrow. And by the way, when the House Republican conference meets more than once a week or more than once a day, it is by definition bad news, bad things are happening, that there's a lack of trust. We call these things family meetings. And the reality is what we're seeing play out right now is essentially in a political way, mom and dad having the fight in front of the kids. And we don't know who's going to win that fight. We just know that it's going to spill out through Thanksgiving dinner and so forth. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, in my experience, usually the one-year-old wins that fight, regardless of who's actually battling. <laughs> I don't know. That's what happens in your house, Phil. <laughs> Not what happens I in always house. lose, regardless. Natasha, uh, we played some sound from Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader. Democrats have kind of held, uh, kept their powder dry on this very intentionally and tried to position themselves uh, as this has played out. Where do you think they go as these days continue to pass along? Well, again, you know, I mentioned Hakeem Jeffries' eloquent uh, sort of description of, of, of Jim Jordan as a defender of this dysfunction, extremist extraordinaire. I think they're sort of rev- reveling in this moment. Um, but at the same time, the fact that there were some moderate Democrats who proposed empowering Patrick Henry a little bit more, um, you know, to get things done, to bring certain legislation to the, fo- to the floor. So there is aid for Ukraine and Israel, um, you know, extending uh, government funding. We have November 17th coming. I mean, there's so there's only so long that you can revel in that dysfunction before you have to figure out what is the game plan to get things done. So we're hearing conversations about that. Uh, obviously, Matt Gates not happy about that. He just wants to get to a vote uh, for Jim Jordan. But yes, Democrats eventually have to show that, you know, governing is the most important thing. And I think that that is what they're trying to figure out right now. I'm sure we will have to talk about this again for many more days. Doug Hyde and Natasha Alford, we appreciate your time as always. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, we're also standing by to hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He is in Jerusalem. He's meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, We're going to likely hear from Blinken soon. We're monitoring all of it. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, investigators in the Chicago area are investigating a horrific attack on a six-year-old boy and his mother. The local sheriff's office says their landlord, seen here, targeted them because they were Muslims. That landlord is now facing first-degree murder and hate crime charges after he reportedly stabbed the six-year-old child 26 times, killing him and seriously injuring his mother. CNN's Whitney Wild is live for us in Chicago. Uh, six-year-old child, I can't put words to it. What's the latest on the investigation? You know, it's so true, Phil. I mean, you think of these words, horrible, tragic, unfair, sad. I mean, these words just seem to not do uh, the horror of this justice. It's just not enough to describe how terrible this is. Uh, Here's what police describe happened Saturday. They said they got a call about a stabbing. And when they arrived, they found the suspect outside near the family's driveway. And when they walked in, Phil, what they found was just, I mean, it was just unspeakable. They found the uh, the two victims in a bedroom. The mother had been stabbed more than a dozen times. The little boy had been stabbed 26 times. They were both rushed to the hospital. The mother is expected to survive. That little boy sadly was killed in this incident. The Council on American Islamic Relations is helping the family through this time. And here's what they said. 
He was a lovely boy who loved his family, his friends, he loved soccer, he loved basketball. And he paid the price for the atmosphere of hate. He has no clue about these larger issues happening in the world, but he was made to pay for it. Police are saying that this man is being charged with hate crimes. Uh, they did not describe the reasons for that other than to say that through their, the course of the, the investigation, the evidence they reviewed, the interviews they conducted led them to believe that those charges were correct. The Council on American Islamic Relations, though, did release more details saying uh, that the, the mother had texted the father from the hospital. Here's how they described uh, what she saw. She's, they say that the landlord, who had been angry with what he was seeing in the news, knocked on their door. And when she opened, he tried to choke her and proceeded to attack her with a knife, yelling, you Muslims must die. When she ran into the bathroom to call 911, she came out to find that he had stabbed her six-year-old son to death. It all happened so fast, Phil. Uh, that man due later in court today. Whitney Wild, thank you for the reporting. Please keep us posted as well on the status of the little boy's mother. And CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News. It's the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live for us in Tel Aviv, Israel. It is 8 a.m. here in New York City, 3 p.m. in Israel. And right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting again with Israeli leaders. As a dire humanitarian crisis is escalating in Gaza and an Israeli ground offensive appears to be imminent. Blinken said just a short time ago the U.S. is, quote, actively working to ensure that humanitarian assistance like water, food and medicine can get into Gaza. Blinken also said yesterday that a safe passage way into Egypt via the Rafah crossing would be open as half a million people have fled northern Gaza for the south. But overnight, those negotiations appear to have stalled. The Israeli prime minister's office saying this morning, quote, at the moment, there is neither a ceasefire nor humanitarian assistance in the Gaza Strip in return for the exit of foreigners. We also just learned President Biden is canceling a planned trip he had to Colorado so that he can attend national security meetings. And that comes as Israel says there are more hostages than we previously knew about. The number now stands at 199, including some Americans. We are covering this from across the world. We begin with CNN anchor Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv, Israel. Aaron, the Secretary of State is back in Israel. There has been a just nonstop questions about what the status of the Rafa border crossing is at this point. Do we have any idea? No. I mean, we know it's closed, but we don't know. We know that there are negotiations ongoing, but then uh, pieces of it leak out. The Egyptian foreign minister just over the past hour here, as we've been live, has said uh, that they're making no progress towards opening that border. And that border, of course, you don't just have a lot of people who want to come out, including Americans who have sort of massed there along that border, the southern Gaza border with Egypt, but also all the humanitarian aid waiting to come in is also along that border. And it is still completely closed. And, uh, you know, you don't know till you know with a negotiation, but certainly what's coming out of it is not positive. But the context, obviously, Phil and Poppy, is that the Prime Minister Netanyahu and Anthony Blinken are in a meeting right now. And Blinken has uh, met with leaders in Egypt uh, as, as well as Jordan uh, and, and around the region. So obviously that's going to be part of the conversation today. But as we have this feeling of, of imminent, and I know we've been saying it for days, uh, but but things are changing and things are moving, the status of that border becomes more and more crucial. But as we speak right now, it is closed, Phil. You heard explosions earlier, Aaron. Um, often 
the sound of them being intercepted by the Iron Dome that is so effective. We have seen debris in people's backyards, even near Tel Aviv. Reminding people, the city behind you is a big, bustling metropolis. What is it like this morning there? Yeah. I will say, you know, you're right. It is, it is, it is sort of the heart and soul of the energy of Israel here, Tel Aviv. Uh, bustling, though, is the one thing it hasn't been uh, since this happened. It has been really still. But yes, there have been uh, rockets that have been coming in here. And you either get the alert if you're in the immediate area or you hear the explosions if you're near but outside the potential area that they determine to be likely for impact. And then uh, that happens in people's backyards. And, you know, being under the Iron Dome at one point, we had 60 rockets come in when you have, and that was near Ashkelon, as you know, we were with you that day. When that happens, those rocket pieces have to go somewhere, right? They get intercepted, they get blown up. Well, then they have to, to come down. So they do in forms of debris. And some of them actually break through. You know, we saw apartment buildings struck, a fire in a building uh, that we then subsequently had to seek shelter in because of more rockets coming in. Uh, but, but that's the reality of it. And that shrapnel coming through, those broken rockets, even ones that uh, are, are intercepted in part, can be deadly for people. That's exactly what you're talking about in somebody's backyard. And it gives you a sense of the randomness and the potency and the fear that people feel. And I want to bring in uh, Sarah Seidner now because she is not far uh, north. She's in Haifa, Israel. That is where American families have been gathering who are boarding a ship uh, to leave Israel. Obviously, an incredibly hard country to get out of. Sarah, you and I have spent so much time in Ukraine. And there, you have so many land borders possible for people to get out. Here, you don't. You simply don't. And, and water is perhaps uh, the main means of egress uh, for many people. And that's what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. There there have been chartered flights, uh, but the flights are just far and few between, the commercial flights. Uh, a lot of them get canceled. El Al is probably one of the only ones that is reliable, but there are very few, uh, very few seats for people. At first, we were seeing tons of people coming in because the reservists were coming in from all over the world. But going out is a different thing for families who want to leave. And particularly for Americans, uh, there is a large contingent of Americans who are here. About 20,000 of them contacted the State Department, not to necessarily to leave, but to get information and some of them to get information to try and leave Israel because they're having such a hard time over the past week uh, trying to get out. It just wasn't working. What we have noticed today is that uh, this ship, which is the Rhapsody of the Seas, which is owned by Royal Caribbean and has been um, basically the United States has asked to use the ship uh, in order to take Americans out. Uh, we've seen mostly families, to be honest. It's mostly families with small children. Children, uh, who are making the decision to leave. This ship holds more than 2,000 passengers, but we've only seen a few hundred Americans. And again, it is oftentimes uh, a mother, father, and three children or two children uh, who uh, are leaving. Often the parents uh, feel very strongly that they want to make sure that their kids uh, are safe, are secure. There is a lot of um, conflict in leaving as well, though. Uh, the families sort of trying to figure out what the right thing to do is for many of them, making sure their kids are safe and making sure their kids do not feel uh, afraid, as many of them have expressed, is the most important thing for these families who some feel they should stay because they want to be here to help the country as it goes through uh, this cycle of war. Uh, but it is remarkable to see this, uh, having to use a ship. And I just want to get out of the way, just let you kind of get an idea of just how big this ship is. I mean, 
It is a proper cruise ship um, that has all the accoutrement on board. And we are seeing it is about to leave. Uh, it has been here uh, since this morning, waiting for people to board. And then at two o'clock is the cutoff. It is now, uh, let's see, it is now three o'clock. So uh, the, you notice there is no way to get on now. It's no longer available uh, to, uh, to actually board because people were supposed to be here by two o'clock. They are very close to leaving. They have just taken some of the the ropes away. And actually, I think it is moving back just a tiny bit. But yeah, this is the way that people are evacuating Israel. Every family we spoke with, by the way, says they will be back. They are not leaving forever. Erin. That's a pretty, it's a pretty incredible image, though, and a powerful image, Sarah, to see uh, in this time, in this day and age, people boarding a ship like that to try to leave. Uh, and I, I think uh, that many complicated feelings for people in seeing that. And as Sarah says, about a 10 hour uh, on that boat to get to Cyprus. And then from there, Americans will be able to find their way back to the United States. Sarah Seidner, thank you very much. And Phil, back to you in New York. Well, thanks, Sarah. And joining us now is John Kirby. He's the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House. Admiral Kirby, thanks for your time. Uh, I, I want to get to the Rafa border crossing and Americans attempting to get out of Gaza in a minute. But to start, the president uh, has canceled his domestic travel today in order to stay at the White House for national security meetings. We know that the prime minister invited him to Israel. Is there any connection between those two things? The, the reason to stay home uh, today, Phil, was really to make sure that he could stay focused on uh, what's going on uh, between our Israel and Hamas. He'll, he will have national security meetings today. Uh, I don't have any travel to speak to or announce uh, uh, with respect to Israel. There was an invitation from the prime minister, but again, no, no travel to speak to right now. The secretary of state is back in Israel today meeting uh, with the prime minister, among many others. Yesterday, he said the uh, Rafa crossing will be open. Consular services told people we were speaking to American citizens in the area it may be open. This morning, the Egyptian foreign minister says there has been no progress on the opening. Israel says no arrangements for an opening. I understand this is complicated. Where, is it stand, where does it stand right now for Americans that are waiting? Right now, it's still closed, uh, and obviously we want to see it open. Secretary Blinken has been working on this very, very hard in the region. You're right, he's back in Israel. Uh, another chance to consult with our Israeli counterparts. We want to see that gate open. Uh, but I just can't tell you with perfect predictability what that's going to look like. Uh, we're hoping, hoping that, that sometime later today it could be open for a period of hours. But again, um, it, we just have to kind of wait and see how this uh, goes. We, we had had those hopes over the weekend, uh, only to see that, uh, that those hopes were dashed. So we're going to keep working at this very, very hard. What's driving the bottleneck? Is it one specific country, one specific issue? I think there's a couple of things at play here. Number one, of course, uh, uh, the Egyptians, they have to be willing to have that gate open and have a flow of, of human traffic uh, through that. Um, and so we're, we're in discussions with them about what that could look like and how that could be managed in a way that that protects Egypt's national security interests as well. They, they have a right to, to look after their own uh, population, of course. The other aspect is Hamas, Phil. I mean, they are literally throwing up roadblocks uh, to prevent people from moving from North Gaza to South Gaza to get to get towards the, the Rafah gate. Uh, they're actually trying to encourage uh, people to remain human shields um, as they try to tunnel up underneath their homes and headquarter in their schools and hospitals. So Hamas is also caused a, a bit of a, well, not a bit, uh, caused a significant amount of the problem. There, there appeared to be at least some level of a humanitarian breakthrough yesterday when Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, uh, said there had been an agreement to turn water back on. 
into Gaza. Uh, the Israelis confirmed that about an hour or two later. Now the Gazan Water Authority says water, they've denied that water is turned back on. Do you know what the issue is there? We're still looking into that, uh, those conflicting reports. Obviously, as Mr. Sullivan said yesterday, we believe it's essential that humanitarian assistance, food, water, medicine, also electrical power uh, remain available to the people of Gaza uh, as much as possible. They are the victims here, too. They didn't ask for this. We want to make sure humanitarian assistance can continue to get in. So I've seen the conflicting reports. Can't confirm exactly uh, where, where the situation is with the water, but it is something that also has been high on Secretary Blinken's agenda as he travels through the region. Uh, we've received a statement from the IDF saying they are in the midst of implementing an evacuation of Israeli towns and, uh, uh, and citizens near the northern border with Lebanon. Do you view this? Is there any indication that this is the start of a Hezbollah operation or concerns that the spillover is happening now? It's worrisome, the, the possibility of having some sort of northern front open up. Uh, as, as we've said all along, we don't want to see this conflict widen. We certainly don't want to see the IDF have to devote resources to a, a second front. It seems to me like they're taking the prudent steps that they feel like they need to take uh, for citizens that live up there. It makes eminent sense. I would tell you that as of this morning, we haven't seen any firm indications that Hezbollah has decided to go all in here and, and truly open up. Uh, a second front for the IDF. But we're watching this closely. That's one of the reasons why, of course, uh, we've moved military assets in the region uh, to make it clear to any would-be uh, actor that might want to get involved and broaden this conflict that they shouldn't do it. The president had a pretty in-depth interview on uh, Israel on what's happening uh, last night. There's one piece of sound I want to play for you. Take a listen. I think that uh, it would be a mistake to, uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again, we did, but the going in and taking out the, uh, the extremists, the uh, Hezbollah is up north, but Hamas down south is a necessary requirement. There hasn't been any dispute from Israeli officials today in terms of what the president laid out there, but I, my question is, if you go in and take out Hamas, what fills that vacuum? Does the U.S. have planning? Have you thought through the what happens next part of this process? We're talking to the Israelis about uh, as much of this as we can and the, and the what next and the day after kinds of questions. But obviously, they're going to have to make these decisions. I don't know that, uh, and I won't speak for them, but I, I don't know that governance in Gaza is really uh, what they're focused on right now, they're focused mostly on trying to get at Hamas targets. And it's difficult to target in there because it's so heavily populated and very urbanized. Um, so, again, I think uh, the, the Israelis are trying to work through this step by step. And I, I don't want to get ahead of where they are. Uh, but the president, I think, was representing real candid forthright concerns uh, about the challenges uh, that would uh, that would meet uh, Israeli forces should they try to have some sort of long term presence in Gaza. Did the issue of leadership in Gaza come up with this call with President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority? I won't talk about the specifics of the diplomatic conversations, Phil. I think you know we're careful about that. Uh, we all want to see uh, the, the people of Gaza protected. We all want to see innocent civilians not harmed, have ability to leave, have ability to get f access to food, water, medicine uh, as appropriate. And the president still believes, even for all this conflict, he still believes in the promise of a two-state solution, that the Palestinians deserve uh, their own state, a place where they can call home. Uh, we, we're, still, we're still fixed to that notion. I know the president, uh, there are no travel plans to announce. Would the president like to travel back to Israel? 
Uh, he's been to Israel many, many times. I have no doubt in my mind that he'll go again. Uh, he knows that this is a critical time for uh, the nation of Israel and for the Israeli people. He has deep and abiding affection and respect for them. But again, I just don't have any travel to speak to this morning. Appreciate your time as always. Admiral John Kirby of the National Security Council. Thank you. Thank you, you bet, Phil. Thank you, Phil, for that. More than 2,700 people have been killed in the strikes on Gaza so far. Hundreds of thousands of civilians have been displaced, many heading south to try to leave through that southern crossing. The latest images from the ground in Gaza next. You are looking at live pictures of the Rhapsody of the Seas. That is the giant cruise liner that the U.S. government has brought into Haifa, Israel. It is just pulling out from port. Our Sarah Seidner has been reporting there throughout the morning. Americans have been boarding that ship. It is now full, closed, room for no one else on that ship. It is heading 10 hours to Cyprus, where Americans will be able to board commercial flights and make their way back to the United States. Uh, this comes as here in Tel Aviv, coming from Haifa, we are seeing some really heavy storms. And uh, I'm showing those to you right now for a very specific reason, because when we have seen these blow through here, and we've heard some, felt some initial raindrops, so these, this is probably uh, going to be moving our direction pretty quickly. You're looking north of Tel Aviv and across the skyline where we are are still some sunshine. Very significant because uh, the Meteorological Service has said that the ferocity of these thunderstorms coming from northern Israel to the south uh, could put both marine and aircraft, marine vessels and aircraft at risk. They're extremely severe. We have felt the brunt of them ourselves. It's literally like a monsoon. Even the heavy-duty tents that we would set up for broadcast the other night when one of these came through, which wasn't even forecast, completely blew our tents down. So it's very severe. And a spokesperson for the IDF was telling me that absolutely this impacts Israel's plans of what it's going to do and whether it's going to be conducting a ground offensive at a given time. So this is significant. And there had been a forecast for these storms to be rolling, moving in and even to the south of here coming uh, through Gaza, where there could be accumulation of up to half an inch. Now, we'll see. But that is a lot of water where we are, which is a complete and utter dust uh, dustbin uh, along along some portions of that border. It comes as this morning the president of the Palestinian Authority. Mahmoud Abbas condemned Hamas's attack on Israel and uh, saying that Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. His office sending out a statement that says, quote, Gaza is now on the brink of a real famine with half a million people displaced and no aid in sight. Continuing to focus on the humanitarian part of this, of course, the Palestinian Health Ministry reporting the number of people killed in Gaza is more than 2,700, almost 10,000 wounded. There's absolutely no way to verify any of these numbers, uh, but we do know that the death toll and the wounded toll uh, is, is significant no matter what. Let's go now to CNN's Salma Abdelaziz. So, Salma, this is a, a mounting humanitarian crisis. What do you understand from your sources, from what you're seeing is happening on the ground? So over the weekend, Erin, you had about half a million Gazans, an estimated half a million, make their way southwards after the Israeli military essentially issued an evacuation order. But even there, Palestinians say they are absolutely not safe. That's what the UN is saying as well. There are no safe spaces in Gaza. And this is only the beginning of the offensive that Prime Minister Netanyahu has vowed after those very brutal attacks, those very barbaric attacks, of course, that left 1,400 Israelis dead. But the fear rights groups say now is that families in Gaza will be the ones to pay the steepest cost. I do want to warn our viewers, the images in this report are graphic. Take a look. 
This is what life looks like in what Israel has designated the safe zone, where constant bombardment has reduced homes to rubble and wiped out entire families, these survivors say. I lost all my relatives, 15 people, this man says. We were not on the front line or anything, we were just sitting at home. What have we done wrong? The UN warns there are no safe places. About half a million people fled here to southern Gaza after an evacuation order by the Israeli military. But families desperate for refuge are still trapped in the war zone. The dead and injured flooding a healthcare system on the brink. More than 2,600 Gazans killed so far, just over a quarter of them are children, according to Palestinian officials. And a week-long siege is strangling the enclave, the UN says, amid fears food, fuel, water and medical supplies may soon run out. Some two million people are crammed into this 140-square-mile territory, now many of them pushed into an even smaller corner of the enclave. About half the population are children. There are not enough shelters to house the sheer number of civilians. And even those who do find spaces in overwhelmed schools turned refugee centers, it is little comfort to the youngest victims. There is no one to protect us, this little girl says. There is no one to come save us. How are we supposed to live? How? Answer me. Prime Minister Netanyahu has vowed to annihilate Hamas, but with a militant group so deeply embedded within Gaza's population, rights groups fear a bloodbath. What we're seeing right now, the direction that Israel is going to, they is going in, they have said they want to destroy Hamas, but their current trajectory is going to destroy Gaza. Hamas does not answer to the people of Gaza. No elections have been held here since the group seized power in 2007. Still, it is these residents that will pay the price. And with a potential ground incursion expected, that cost is unfathomable. Now, as you know, Aaron, there are intense diplomatic efforts underway to open the Rafah border crossing uh, to allow some aid, some humanitarian aid that's piling up in Egypt into Gaza and to allow foreign nationals out. So far, there seems to be a standoff there. Uh, Israel has denied, Israel's government has denied that there's any ceasefire that's about to take place or any humanitarian pause. Egypt continues to insist that aid must go in before foreign nationals come out. For U.S. officials, this is absolutely a matter of priority, particularly with the clock ticking and that potential ground incursion coming any day now. Salma, thank you very much. Uh, the powerful report there. And the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is here in Tel Aviv, where uh, I am standing right now, uh, coming back uh, for was not an, what was not announced until last night, had not been expected for a second visit, but is back and right now uh, meeting uh, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is also going to be meeting with the Israeli President, Isaac Herzog. Uh, so all of that happening. Christian Amanpour uh, joins me now. And uh, Christian, I, I want to start by Salma's reporting, obviously, about what's going on inside Gaza. The context of this border crossing, could you put it in context? Because obviously it's crucial mm -hmm. for people getting out and supplies getting in. But how crucial is it for Israel's decision on, on a ground offensive? I mean, does that border need to open for that offensive to happen? Or are, is linking those two things temporally a mistake? 
Well, it's possible that the U.S. is trying to link those two things in order to get out as many civilians as possible from, from harm's way. It's not clear. We don't know. I don't know what uh, Blinken is talking to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu about in that regard. But what's clear, and we've heard from the Egyptian foreign minister in a, you know, in a statement, that there has been, quote, no progress made on any opening for any reason at the Rafah crossing. And as you know, there's only two crossings. One is Rafah into Egypt and one up in, in the north is the Erez crossing into Israel, where there's obviously no humanitarian or any other movement as Israel braces for what looks like a ground offensive there. So what the uh, Egyptians are saying, that they don't want to open it until Israel agrees to allow humanitarian aid in. That hasn't been agreed to yet. And uh, others say that they can't open it because the bombing around the Rafah uh, crossing has made the roads uh, impassable. They can't be used. So it's unclear exactly what the exact reason is. Now, Palestinians are saying, and other Arabs are saying, who I've been speaking to, that they, many of them, do not want to move from northern Gaza to the south, A, because they don't want to leave their homes, they don't know how to survive there, they think it's probably just as dangerous in the south as in the north, but many are concerned that they may never be allowed to go back to their homes in Gaza City and in northern Gaza after any war is over. They're worried about that. There are Arab leaders yeah. who are concerned that if the, if the aim is to, you know, push Palestinians into Egypt. First, Egypt doesn't want that because they don't want to have a mass influx. They don't want to have potential terrorists coming in, the Hamas people, weapons and all the rest of it. They've spent years trying to cleanse their Sinai yeah. area of militants. Uh, and, and the Arabs are very concerned that this becomes another forced exodus that uh, disallows Palestinians to come back into Gaza. So, so Christian, uh, when you think about, you know, Israel isn't even, there's no notion of that border, uh, the Israeli border opening at any time, right? Possibly ever. I mean, no. you've got 350,000 troops massed on that border. And yet, even still today, John Kirby said uh, of, of the National Security Council just a few moments ago that the United States still believes in a two-state solution, a Palestine and an Israel. Here's what he just said to Phil. I won't talk about the specifics of the diplomatic conversations, Phil. I think you know we're careful about that. Uh, we all want to see uh, the, the people of Gaza protected. We all want to see innocent civilians not harmed, have ability to leave, have ability to get f access to food, water, medicine uh, as appropriate. And the president still believes, even for all this conflict, he still believes in the promise of a two-state solution, that the Palestinians deserve uh, their own state, a place where they can call home. Uh, we, we're, still, we're still affixed to that notion. So, Christian, of course, uh, they believe it. At this point, is that anything close to reality or, or is it a bit of wishful thinking or perhaps even naivete? Well, clearly there are people who still, uh, you know, belong to a rapidly dwindling peace camp who would like to think that out of this calamity uh, on all sides, out of this terrible, terrible, terrible calamity will come some kind of game-changing event in the future. But... It's very hard to see that at the moment. It's almost cavalier, perhaps, to say that the United States has had eyes off 
the Palestinian issue for way too long, thinking that there's no return for them, no political return internally, domestically, no ability to convince uh, the leadership uh, in either Israel or, or the Palestinian territories to actually go for that. This is a big problem. The United States has not been involved in this peace process for a long, long time. The Israeli government is nowhere near being in a peace camp and has been, uh, you know, as you know, fighting it against yeah. its peace camp and its liberal, uh, you know, democratic population as it has gone further and further to the extreme right, to the religious nationalist extreme right, who would like to see uh, an annexation uh, uh, of, the, of the West Bank and, and a massive in increase in settlements and perhaps even yeah. solve, quote unquote, the Palestinian issue by sending the West Bank Palestinians into Jordan. This is a non-starter and a red line for countries like Jordan and the others. So it requires leadership yes. after this calamity, uh, whether anything like that is going to be possible. Mm. Okay, and any leader who can, can rise to that occasion in this context, Christiane Amanpour, Thank you so much, Phil. Well, an extensive tunnel of system, an extensive tunnel system below Gaza played a key role in allowing Hamas to orchestrate their deadly attack on Israel. We're going to go through the current challenges those tunnels pose to the IDF. Also, you're going to see something extraordinary. After the horror that played out in Israel, many Israeli Americans quickly jumped at the opportunity to join the fight and defend their homeland. I want to come home safely to my family. I want to see my boys grow up. Um, but you have to put that aside and, and stop the madness. We are live in Tel Aviv, Israel. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, here today. He is now on his way to meet with the Israeli President uh, Isaac Herzog. President Biden, meantime, has canceled his domestic trip to Colorado. He was going to be talking about the economy today uh, in Lauren Boebert's district, actually. Now has canceled that, focusing on national security meetings. The context of this is the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has invited Biden to visit Israel. We're not aware of any travel plans, but we do know that he's canceled the Colorado trip for security meetings during the day today. And it comes as the humanitarian aid deliveries accumulate at the Egyptian-Gaza border, that Rafah border that we're talking about so much here. That's where thousands are still waiting to escape from the Gaza side. And that includes hundreds of Palestinian Americans. And, and by the way, even some Americans, American doctors we are aware of who are in there, uh, who are trying to get out as well. And there's complete confusion over whether that border will open at all, never mind uh, when that border will open. Meantime, the government media office of Hamas, and I want to be very important to stress the source here, has put out a picture. Uh, this picture, they say, is a mass grave where dozens of unidentified bodies have been buried. Uh, and, and Phil and Poppy, the context here is that they're saying that their hospital freezers are full because of strikes and the number of dead and that they're unable to store them anywhere. And of course, with the loss of power, unable to care for them in the right way. Uh, and now are starting to begin these mass graves. Uh, again, that's from the Hamas government media office. But yeah. regardless of the source, the humanitarian tragedy there, of course, uh, rises by the moment, Poppy. That's right. So striking, Aaron. First time I've seen uh, th that image. I think uh, the same for a lot of our viewers. We'll get back to you very soon, Aaron. Thank you very much. Let's also talk about what Israel is facing in Gaza. Should there be a ground incursion? You've got a vast labyrinth of tunnels underneath Gaza. The IDF says Hamas terrorists are hiding in a subterranean network under houses, under apartment buildings uh, of innocent 
Palestinian civilians. Hamas in 2021 claimed to have built over 300 miles worth of these tunnels. And if that's true, it would be a little less than half the length of the New York City subway station system, I should say. Just think about that. How does this underground network complicate Israel's offensive and efforts to rescue those hostages? With us at the wall, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. Israel had claimed, John, a couple of years ago, 2021, to have destroyed a lot. They said 62 miles of this tunnel network. Even with that, what are they facing on the ground here? Well, the tunnel network on a good day when you're not at war has been essential to Hamas. It's the way they move fighters around. It's the way they move weapons around. It's the way they, they avoid what is pervasive Israeli surveillance in terms of signals, satellites, cameras. So it's, it's very important to them. Uh, you know, we talked about this earlier with, uh, with General Hurtling, but these have secret entrances in buildings. Uh, they have entrances off the street. They go down hundreds of feet underground, and they provide not just a shade from surveillance, but at a difficult time like now from aerial bombing mm-hmm. and things that allow Hamas to, to stay operational while you see the, the damage and the carnage above ground. We were talking about this in the break. How on earth do you go in there if there are civilian hostages down there and terrorists down there? How do Israeli forces go in there, get out the hostages, kill the terrorists most effectively? Well, this is where our intelligence gap is, which is probably a good thing. We don't know as we stand here how much the Israelis know about the mapping of the tunnels that were rebuilt, the mapping of the new tunnels where hostages are being held, what their level of detail is. But at a base level, even if they're operating in the dark, coming into the tunnels from multiple directions um, and doing a hostage rescue effort is always going to be high risk. But it's something that the Israelis in particular have a lot of experience with. Let's also talk about the two key Hamas leaders, Mohammed al-Daif and Yaha Sinwar. What do we need to know about them? Well... Yahya Sinwar is the the leader on the ground. Um, There are other Hamas leaders who operate out of Doha. Uh, We encountered one of them last week when he put out the worldwide threat. That's right. um, And and the day-to-day kind of politics of it. But he's the man on the ground in Gaza who is the head of the political wing. He's been around a long time and off the radar for some of it. He spent 23 years in an Israeli prison but he is known as a shrewd operator, calm under pressure, soft-spoken, and somebody who has been very good at creating alliances and communications channels with Egypt, which borders uh, Gaza and has that critical crossing, as well as Iran that has become obviously a major factor in supplying missiles. But that takes us to Mohammed al-Dif. Al-Dif is uh, his alias. It means the guest because as the military leader on the ground in Gaza of Hamas. He never sleeps in the same place two nights in a row. He often sleeps in places that are in those tunnels or moving from house to house. He has been with Hamas, uh, born in 1965, grew up in a refugee camp in, in southern Gaza. Oddly, in college, his main interest was in drama. Um, but as he got into the intifada, spent time in Israeli prison, came back. In the 90s, he quickly rose through the ranks. But when you look at him, think back to that time. 
the bombings of the buses, the mm-hmm. bombings of the restaurants crowded with tourists and Israelis. Um, this is the period where he made his mark. Targeted by Israel, um, his, uh, his locations were attacked. He lost two children. He lost an arm. He lost a leg. But he is a committed warrior. He lost an arm and a leg and is still and, you know, moving has, every night. Has half his hearing. But if you want to know who is the tactical mastermind yes. between what we've seen in the last uh, week, that would be El oh. John, thank you very much. Really illuminating. Appreciate it. Phil. Well, Israeli Americans are answering the call as Israel is seeking about 300,000 reservists from around the world to join the fight against Hamas. These American Israelis say that after seeing hundreds of Hamas gunmen storm into Israel, killing people and abducting others, they knew they had to drop everything and defend their country. CNN's Stephanie Elam is live in Los Angeles with more. Uh, Stephanie, it's been a remarkable thing to watch over the course of the last eight days. What did you find? Phil, in just a couple of days, these people have dropped their lives. You're talking about accountants, therapists, uh, real estate agents, and just knew that they needed to get back to Israel. And that is where this chartered flight came in to help get them there. I've done my crying, and I, I, I can't even begin to process it. After seeing the first images from the attack on the Nova Music Festival... I want to go and... I almost feel like I, I need to go. Dorel Meyeri felt he had only one option, get to Israel. I was just in shock. It didn't make sense to me, the things that I was seeing. A Los Angeles native, Meyeri was born to Israeli parents who moved to the U.S. 35 years ago. I love where I came from. I know who I am. I'm American. I'm Israeli. After college, the 28-year-old joined the Israel Defense Forces. He says two of his friends from his time in the IDF were killed in the Hamas attack. I started looking at flights. But most air carriers had halted service to Israel. I think this is nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> That's where Jordan Freed stepped in. I got a distress phone call from a, a soldier who needed to get back. I think I naively accepted the challenge and I started making phone calls. I'm Israel, hi. I'm Israel, hi. In less than a week, the newly formed nonprofit Israel Friends raised private funds and organized this chartered flight to carry 150 people from a handful of nations to Tel Aviv, along with tons of humanitarian aid. These were civilians a week ago, but are now reservists who have call up orders to get back to their units. I know none of them. They don't know each other. And yet, despite the early morning hour, there's a palpable energy of camaraderie and purpose. I'm volunteering there to see whatever they need. Left everything behind the wife and uh, just go to a flight. I want to come home safely to my family. I want to see my boys grow up. Um, but you have to put that aside and, and stop the madness that's happening. Meiri is also leaving family behind. As a mom, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling proud, very, very proud that uh, he made uh, such a big decision. I can't lie to you, my, stum- like my stomach is turning, but I'm so proud of him. What are you most afraid of? Just the outcome. I just fear the unknown at the moment. But this moment is for final goodbyes, as brave faces give way to tears. What's your overwhelming thought right now? We're going to fight for our country, so we're we're ready, and it's amazing that everyone's everyone's ready, and you know, just doing my part. One final embrace, they pray, won't be their last. 
And Mayuri did tell me that October 7th will always be a loss for the Israeli people. There's no winning when he goes back to fight. He knows that, but he still wanted to be there. Um, I have been in touch with him, Phil and Poppy, and I can tell you that he has made it to Israel and that he has reported to base. Uh, he's been a paratrooper. He was a commander when he served in IDF before, and he is back there because he wanted to be with his soldiers and he wanted to fight for this country. He says, I love America, but I love Israel as well. What a story. Great reporting. Stephanie Elam, thank you. All right, take a look. Live pictures out of Capitol Hill, where the House still has no speaker this Monday morning. Our Abby Phillip live in studio to help us figure out if the chaos is ending. Abby's here next. Well, a number of House Republicans are in talks to block Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's path to the speakership, yet he is still pushing for a floor vote tomorrow. Take a listen to what one Republican had to say about bullying GOP holdouts into supporting Jordan. What I, and what I would really recommend to Jordan's allies, too, is, is a lot of them have mounted this, this, this high-pressure campaign. They're going to they're gonna whip up Twitter against the people who are against Jordan. That is the dumbest way to support Jordan, and I'm supporting Jordan. The dumbest thing you can do is to continue pissing off those people and entrench them. Let's bring in Abby Phillips. She's the anchor of CNN Newsnight. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm laughing at what this because... Uh, all of this chaos. Because I don't know how the, I feel like, and I think you, you probably both appreciate this, we always kind of know how yeah. it's going to end, right? It's just a matter of how much pain everyone's going to have to go through before you get to the end game. I don't know what the end game is here. Yeah, and every time I talk to Republicans, no one seems to know what the end game is. The reality is that Jim Jordan is much farther away from the speakership than even Kevin McCarthy was mm -hmm. earlier this year when it took him 15 rounds to get those last few votes. How does this end? I, I don't know. I mean, what, I've talked to a lot of the more moderate Republicans, people like Dan Crenshaw in that clip, who are so angry. They are so angry. They do not want to reward the people who put them in this mess. Uh, some of them has, have said they will never vote for a Jim Jordan, but there are actually more of them than there were of the Matt Gates holdouts. And so under those circumstances, it is really not clear to me where this goes. I do think, though, there will be a vote of some kind. And then it'll be the same thing that we saw last week. Just like Steve Scalise had to have a moment to realize, do I have the votes? Do I not? A similar thing will happen with Jim Jordan. And then perhaps another name will emerge that we're not talking about just yet. One of the defenses of this mess from Matt Gates over the weekend in his interview with um, with our colleague Michael Smirkanish was, well, because of this legislation that was passed a handful of years ago by, by Rubio, I think Coons as well, Israel has this funding. You know, the $3.8 billion a year, it's going to continue. We don't have to sort of reauthorize this. That is a defense to say that it's okay. And, we're, and he said, we're still having meetings and we're still getting things done. The government is going to run out of funding in four weeks. Yeah. Uh, there are agenda items, and that's why you're hearing some Republicans and Democrats saying, we need a plan B in case the Republicans can't get their act together. They're talking about empowering the, the speaker pro temp, uh, Patrick McHenry, so that they can address things that come, just have a process for legislative business. Now, one of the agenda items that Democrats are interested in and moderates are interested in is Ukraine aid. I was just going to say that does not That's, continue each year. That does not continue each year. That needs to be authorized. And 
that might be why this uh, sort of temporary solution won't happen, because the hardliners don't want to authorize Ukraine aid. They don't want to make it possible for something like that to happen. We are in a true stalemate here in Congress, and it's going to be a question of um, are the adults in the room going to step up and are they going to have enough power and clout to move a process forward that uh, empowers where, the honestly, the vast majority of the House in both parties are? We're talking about a couple dozen people uh, on the, in the Republican Party who are stopping all business. And I think that that's, uh, we'll see how tenable that is as we go toward, especially this government funding deadline in mid-November. Uh, switching topics, just because I think this all actually plays into uh, what's happening in the House to some degree, what ha- what's happening in Israel, obviously. We're talking yeah. about uh, funding for Israel as they look towards uh, a counteroffensive there. There's a new CNN poll out that says that 96% of Americans have either a lot of or some sympathy for the Israeli people. 67% of Americans have a lot uh, or some sympathy for the Palestinian people. I think politically speaking, why this those numbers are going to shift when an offensive begins or a counteroffensive begins. I think that's part of why you've seen President Biden be so forward-leaning on this, uh, despite decades of support of Israel. What stands out to you with those numbers? Well, look, I mean, I think that it's not a surprise that the numbers in support of Israel are as high as they are. I think in both parties, the vast majority, when it comes to politics, the vast majority of Americans support uh, Israel and its right to exist. The, the question becomes, what happens when the civilian casualties go up, when the bombs start falling? And I also think that this is going to be a question of where political leaders start to come into play. You have people like Ron DeSantis basically squashing the distinction between Hamas terrorists and Palestinian people, civilians. And that is not helpful in this environment because just as a factual matter, there are millions of people in Palestine who have nothing to do with the bombs falling uh, in Israel or that terrorist attack. And there is a real humanitarian crisis that's unfolding there and that the world is going to be dealing with, not just uh, the United States. So we'll see how this goes. I mean, I I think that um, at the end of the day, you know, how this is talked about by leaders in this country and over there is going to have a huge determination on where public opinion shifts on this DeSantis issue. trying to explain why America shouldn't take any Palestinian yeah. refugees, saying they're all anti-Semitic. I mean, it's, it's words sad. matter. It's sad, yeah. honestly. Well, Abby, thank you. Good to have you. Good to Can't see wait you to both. watch you tonight, the launch of your show. We really PM. appreciate it. See you at a news night with Abby Phillip tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern. We will be there. Well, Saturday Night Live made its long-awaited return this weekend. So did host and former cast member Pete Davidson. Now, you'll remember Davidson lost his father in the 9-11 attack. He used his opening monologue to address victims of the ongoing war in Israel. This week, we saw the horrible images and stories from Israel and Gaza. And I know what you're thinking. Who better to comment on it than Pete Davidson? (laughs) Well, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, I am a good person to talk about it because when I was seven years old, uh, my dad was killed in a terrorist attack. So I know something about what that's like. Um, I saw so many terrible pictures this week of children suffering, uh, Israeli children and Palestinian children. And uh, it took me back to a really horrible, horrible place. And, um, you know, no one in this world deserves to suffer like that, you know, especially not kids. I don't understand it. Uh, I really don't. And I never will. But sometimes 
Comedy is really the only way forward through tragedy. A hearing will start in just over an hour on Special Counsel Jack Smith's request to place a gag order on the former president in the federal election subversion case. Now, that gag order would restrict what former President Trump could say about the case after he verbally attacked multiple people, including the judge. Trump's lawyers have asked the judge to reject the request. One of the country's largest uh, pharmacy chains has filed for bankruptcy this morning. That is Rite Aid. That decision, not a total surprise. The company has faced mounting debt. Much of it stemming from lawsuits over opioids. Rite Aid is accused of filling unlawful opioid prescriptions for its customers. Walgreens, CVS, other pharmacy chains settled similar lawsuits over the past couple of years. And it was another scary moment for the Buffalo Bills last night. Bills running back Damian Harris going down after a short run and laying on the ground for several minutes. Harris was taken to the hospital for further testing. Players from both teams signaled for doctors after Harris was tackled. The Bills saying in a statement after the game, his neck was injured. Bills confirmed that he does have movement in his arms and legs. A positive sign, Harris gave a thumbs up to the fans as he was loaded into the ambulance. Hoping for the best for him. Of course, we are saying on all the breaking news out of Israel and Gaza. Stay with CNN. News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.